Hello. Hey, hey, how you doing? Good. Glad to hear it. I'm officially in summer mode. Oh, what does that entail? <clears throat> it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely in high gear. I just worked, like, over the weekend, like, 50, just just under 50 hours at a fest at a rib festival in like the baking sun it was awesome <laughs> rib festival just cooking meat yeah i was the pit master at the rochester at the good smoked barbecue at the rochester rib fest mm-hmm. and we won people's choice award hell yeah yeah so i'm hoping to get a little bonus i didn't realize till afterwards i'm like Oh shit! I was kind because of, I like always think of my bosses as the people who are running it. I'm like, oh wait, no, I I cooked all that food. <laughs> <laughs> so it was mostly the girl with the big boobs though that worked the front and and reminded everybody to vote for us that I think actually won us People's Choice Awards. Ah, all right. <clears throat> well, the. Uh... You know, there's a very uncomfortable reality here, which is this is going to be like southern sacrilege. I've never really been big on ribs. You know, I just I really I'm don't. I'm not either, see- really. I eat them about twice a year. <laughs> yeah. They're they're like, I I like them. They're delicious, but they're I I know that I'm they're just so insanely rich. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I know that if I ate them all the time, I would eventually hate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, well, I like the flavor of it and everything. It's just, I guess, my gripe with it is, it's like, it, you you have this really fucking huge bone, and like two or three bites of meat, and then that's right. You, no, you have to get you, you have to go someplace where they have the baby backs. Yeah, no, that, bags, no, those are good. Yeah, I, I baby agree. bags have just like that layer of of basically it's like a pork loin just lo- lo- laying across it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, no, those are awesome. I agree. The, 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 that's what we serve at like our restaurant, but we're not allowed to serve them at the rib fest because everybody has to serve the sa- spare ribs. So yeah, we had the 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 ones we had had a decent amount of meat on them, but they they just look paltry compared to like the baby bags. Which are almost like a little piece of, you know, they're like they're basically a piece of pork loin each one. Yeah, that's always what it reminded me of. Yeah, pork loin. So now, yeah, now that is good. I, I agree with you. But you know, it's just like ribs, and I just I don't see the I I've never seen what the fucking hype of that is all about. You know, and when people say, "Oh hey, yeah, I can eat like eight ribs," it's like okay, so you're eating like three bites per. <laughs> I mean, I mean, basically what you're saying is you can eat. A, a three-piece meal from KFC, okay? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, Just it's about same amount of fat and and protein and weight as, yeah. A people, it's people. Food is all based on. It's all in everybody, each person's mind, and based on, you know, their 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 upbringing and experiences with it. You know, so it's 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 all it's all bullshit <laughs> i mean actually i mean good food people who are really good cooks are really good cooks but people you know i mean the 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 rib festival it's you know there's all these vendors that basically are carnies that tour around 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And they're all getting they're they're all getting the exact same ribs, and they they all get the exact same ribs that are like pre cooked and seasoned, and you know, and then they decor up decorate their place up really differently and some of them have a little more sugar <laughs> in their sauce and some of them don't and you know and and people the first place that people get that was like their first barbecue they're like this is the best barbecue ever blah 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 and they'll always go back there and be loyal to it but it's like it's so it's so individually i i learned that being an lsd dealer too that people would like i took some lsd with a picture of bart simpson on it 10 years ago so I need more with that and it's like well I hate to tell you but it's not going to be the same I'm telling you it's the best well it's just it's got the same picture on it you don't know who made well, it didn't matter yeah you know it kind of makes you think that that whole idea of like consumer branding and stuff doesn't really exist at least in the same way in I would think the illicit drug world as it would in say Target you know it does sort of yeah it it, it, it it, it totally does, and people get their drug dealer and stick with them for ten years because, you know, it's it they it's like going to the same store or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. just how the, the the human brain. Well, I went to a um like a hot sauce festival. Uh, I want to say it's like a year ago or a year and a half, mm-hmm. something like that. And you know, being as this is you know Texas, I mean to say that. You make better hot sauce than anybody else. Them's fighting words, you know. So, but there was this one guy uh, who said that, you know, uh, at his booth, he would only let you sample his hot sauce if you signed a medical release. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a William Castle movie trick where you had to sign like a death insurance before, you know, in case, you know, a disclaimer in case you died of fright at one of his movies. Yeah, and was it to me, that hot though? Well, and that's the thing. I thought that is fucking bullshit. That is absolute hype. But I don't know if I want to fuck with that too much. Right, so, right. Because he can do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing is, I mean, you know, how legally binding is that really? It's all for show, or so I thought, right? right? But I happened to be at the booth, like directly across from his, when all hell broke loose. And. You know, some girl who I guess thought that, you know, well, I've been raised in Texas my whole life. I I can handle anything. Mm. You know, like that kind of obnoxious, like East Texas type, you know, and like the George Bush type of Texan. Right. And um, so she signed his little thing and then he got a little toothpick out and like just dipped it in in the hot sauce. And he said, "Um, last chance to back out. Are you sure you want to do this? And she didn't even answer. She just took the toothpick out of his mouth, licked it, and they ended up having to call an ambulance. Yes. <laughs> we have we, we have stuff like that. We keep it out in a box in our trailer <laughs> so that <laughs> so that an over because there's always people coming up going, We have we have some hot we we have hot barbecue sauce for our ribs and there you know, it's not very hot at all and people are j- and there, there was a time when people wanted everything fiery hot, and now everybody wants everything wimpy. So there's always people who are like, yeah, you're, you know, your wing sauce isn't that hot. You know, can you spice it up for us? And we're like, yeah, yeah. And we've got some Dave's Insanity sauce. 
and we'll right. just add some Dave's Insanity sauce to it, and that'll heat it right up. But it's a big gallon of sauce, so you know it, it, it dilutes it really good, so it's not going to kill anybody. But then some of them will come back, and they'll be like, "Yeah, really, the you know they they actually know that we put Dave's Insanity in it because they they could detect it, and they were just like, yeah, you know." <laughs> you could add some more. That's when we go out and get the one million Scoville unit oil that's in this little tiny vial. And it's just we, we there were some people doing that once with this one cook. And we literally added two drops to probably four or five cups of our regular barbecue sauce, which is deep, deep burgundy red, almost oh, yeah. brown. And we added like two drops of it, mixed it up. All of a sudden, our sauce was candy apple red. And we were like, whoa, that's a danger sign. And like toss the guys. But the guy was like, hey, you know, go for it, whatever. We tossed his wings in it. And he came back the next day and he was like, yeah, they were they were way too hot. (laughs) When I was leaving the other day, one of the little daredevil, he's this little nerdy kid, but he's a little daredevil. And he had a he had some people like that, and he was mixing up. He probably had a drop and a half of it in a little cup, in a little side cup, and he was mixing it up. And I'm like, Vinny, you're play, you're literally playing with fire there. And I'm like, you know, you have to taste that if you're gonna send that out to a customer. And and he tasted it, did not bat an eye. He's like, that's pretty hot, and a little bit of, but I was like, okay. <laughs> mm. So there's people who can I, – I think it's not that they can take it. I think they've just burned out enough well, and, <laughs> taste buds that, that they're inured to it, you know. That, they're like that, junkies. That, that leads into something actually that I've been wanting to ask you about because like from one smoker to another – like I don't smoke anymore. Right. But I still smoked for like over half my life, right? And so – because like nicotine is – You're still putting gaseous nicotine into your lungs. Yeah. <laughs> And like the thing is, you know, like nicotine, like nicotine and caffeine, those are really my two drugs of choice. You know, like every addict has his or her drug of choice and those two are mine. So thank God they're legal. Right. But what I've noticed is that what I define as spicy is something an entire universe removed from what Stacy considers spicy. I mean, like she likes a lot of the same stuff I do, but she says that she just can't handle it when I when. Like say I like when I make spaghetti, I like spicing the fuck out of the sauce because to me then you can really taste it, you know. And well, she there's, said, "There's also people who have more. There, there's also a vast difference in taste buds on. So some people have like the normal amount of taste buds, and some people usually they end up being cooks, <laughs> end up having like super concentrated." taste buds and there's the whole spectrum in between so some people and like women will traditionally have more taste buds than men so they will be more sensitive to heat and salt but i mean you're vaping now i don't think that really like does to your to your taste buds what like smoking a you know it doesn't put layers of tarry stuff you know well, I was what I was thinking was maybe it like it damages your taste buds such that even if you stop, the damage is done. You know, maybe. I, it, it made me wonder about that. But what I've noticed is that I just I like very seasoned food. I like it really spicy or I like it really salty. I like it really sweet. Just whatever it is. I need I need like the full the effect extremes of, that of it. Yeah. You know, 
And I don't know. It's just it's one of those things I always kind of wonder well, that, about. That's also very common of the American palate that we've been brought up on is, you know, our food. I mean, it's it's gotten to the point now where marketing just admits, you know, for the last decade has just admitted it and puts the words extreme. <laughs> on yeah, things. on fucking everything. Yeah. Uh, so, extreme. you know, that they've they've put five times as much of the, you know, the flavoring on it that. And yeah, and should I like I can't eat at Taco Bell anymore. Taco Bell's too like too concentrated on the salt. Really, like, Taco Bell? Yeah, if they if they took their salt down like twenty five percent, I would be eating a Taco Bell all the time. But like when I eat their beans now, they taste just. Like, but that's because I'm used to like cooking up my own beans, you know. And I never yeah, was a very salt salt his beans. What kind of that's fucking does it. Like people do that, they salt, they salt their beans. Everything that we eat is salted to to even if you don't taste it. Shit, like you know, when you're drinking Gatorade, you're drinking massive amounts of salt. Same with same with like a lot of the energy drinks. It just doesn't taste salt. It's you know different kinds of salt. Electrolytes <laughs> are pretty much just like you're just swallowing a salt of some sort. Every so there's salt and it's sugar. Got electrolytes. It, everything yeah Yeah, well like i don't know i mean uh maybe i've just never noticed it i don't know but i mean i truly keep in mind now where i live but i truly don't think i've ever tasted refried beans that have salt i don't think i've ever seen anybody salt that like i don't mean like rarely or it's it's unusual i mean i've fucking never seen it ever oh no no like not at the table but when you're cooking refried beans yeah there's there's usually a lot of salt. There's a good amount of salt in there. That's yeah, fucked you, up. You just don't. Well, when you like, if you just put salt on your tongue, you taste salty. But sometimes when it's mixed up in something, that's the thing about salt is it sort of, um, ex, is accentuate the word. It's probably not the right word, but it brings out it brings out it will intensify the flavor of whatever it is that you have there. There's something to where you're not ta- you're tasting a combination of the salt and like the meat or the beans, but it becomes one flavor. At least that's how my you know, big it, fat it, Mexican it, boss explained it to me. You know me. what? I think there's actually something to that though, because oh yeah, you know when I when we cook for the Fourth of July, you know we have our big cookout, and. Nine times out of ten, I'm the one that gets drafted into making all of the chili con queso. And the reason for that is because everybody just fucking they like the way that I make it. Every time, every fucking time somebody's in the room with me as I make it, they say, you shouldn't add salt to it. Every time, you know. And what I tell people is that there are two. This is going to sound fucking insane, but just hear me out. There are two secret ingredients to making chili con queso. The first one is a, a decent amount of salt. The second is a tiny little bit of vanilla extract. Mm. And wow. now you, you, you put all the other bullshit in there. You know, you, you put in your, your, uh, your onion powder, your, your milk, your Velveeta, all the, all, all the, the standard, standard bullshit. Stuff. Yeah. But like as far as the secret ingredients, mm-hmm. a little bit of salt and even less vanilla extract. And what that does is it gives the queso this at, at once. It's a little bit rich. How'd you figure out the vanilla extract? 
Well, I don't believe in cooking anything the same way twice. And so, especially when I when I was uh, younger, what I would do is I just grab shit out of uh, out of the cabinet and just sure. drop a little bit in. And so the queso I made on Monday may taste nothing at all like the stuff I make on Friday, right? And and the reason for that is because I just use different shit every time because I like it. I, I like having something different every time, you know. But one of the things I noticed was that if I hadn't just, and I, I mean a very little bit, I mean like one or two, maybe at most three drops of right. vanilla extract, oh, yeah, yeah. and then that's it. And what happens is you get the spiciness of whatever it is that you're using as your as your picani sauce, whether it's paste or if you got Rotel, fucking whatever, whatever you're using. And a tiny little bit of um, salt will bring out sort of the uh, the spice a little bit. And then you've got, you know, uh, the vanilla extract, and it makes it just a tiny little bit tangy. And what I find is that no one, if if they just eat a bite of it, based no on what, there's vanilla extract in this in a million years. Probably. Never happened. Never. Yeah, happened. it'll never happen. Yeah, that it's. I I had an experience like that. We were making black bean dip, for a catering, and I was working at a vegetarian place with this woman, this great awesome woman ran the place and um we were i don't know how it happened but we you know i mean it was going to be a bean dip like a mexican bean dip so it was basically beans salsa i think we were using um chipotle peppers for the, the you know the spice in it and you oh, know geez. tomatoes and yeah. onions and cilantro all the just sort of garlic and little le- lemon juice and somehow she spilled a whole bunch of bake like powdered baking chocolate on it you know non no sugar in it you know just basic just chocolate hmm. and we were like oh geez what are we going to do with it we can't really wash it out or whatever or get it out of there yeah so we were like well we'll just grind it up see what it tastes like and then start over so we ground it up and it was the most delicious black bean dip ever never in a million years would you have detected been like this is chocolatey you know it added almost a bitterness to it yeah it was insanely addictive it was people would just like pound into it and then it became one of her big sellers and it all was just because some got spilled in it one day it makes you wonder how often that has to happen you know how how often must that happen a lot, and and when you figure the the centuries that people have been cooking, you know that's that's probably how a lot of lot of shit got detected. You know, either by mis- or figured out by mistake or by somebody going like, "Hey, this sounds crazy, but let's just throw this in here." You know, I remember being a little kid and seeing <clears throat> a recipe for a it was peanut butter bananas. Um, bacon lettuce tomato sandwich Hmm. or no it was it was it was peanut butter bananas bacon lettuce tomato and mayo Mm -hmm. sandwich and i was like that sounds like the most disgusting thing i've ever had and then i made it (laughs) just out of curiosity because it said this may sound like the most disgusting thing you've ever had but it's delicious and it was delicious like super delicious well, the um, 
this was a couple of shit. This was like two, three years ago now. Went over to my brother's place, and he's like a cooking enthusiast. I mean, this guy, I think he missed his calling. You know, like in a, there's like a, a parallel universe out there somewhere where he actually did become a uh, chef of uh, some sort. Yeah, it, it, there's got to be something like that out there. And he he made cheese enchiladas. Now, that is an incredible pain in the nuts to to make like authentic Tex-Mex mm-hmm. uh, cheese enchiladas. At, I mean, yeah, you could do it's it. It's really only feasible for restaurants because then you can make everything in large quantities and it's a very and have them sitting there to piece it all together. To piece it all together at home, you got to do a million different things. Mhm. And, you know, there are th- he'd never really thought too much about how you would do it. So what he ended up doing was he just sort of improvised on, well, this is probably the way that they do it at restaurants and stuff. And on certain elements of it, I think the answer to that is most assuredly, yeah, he got it right. But what he needed, um, like for the uh, sauce, that sort of chili gravy sauce that they put on top, he needed some sort oh, yeah. of a binding agent. And he really couldn't think of any kind of paste or anything like that that would really cornstarch. Yeah, and and for whatever reason, he said that cornstarch doesn't work as well as you'd think. And so he 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 just you know spent he said something like an hour just trying to figure this out. And then it, what he eventually decided to do uh, as a binding agent for his um, chili gravy. Do you know what he do you know what he ended up doing? He used flour. He used peanut butter. Sure. Oh, yeah. And there is – I think he needs to perfect his recipe. There's no question about that. But if you just bite into it, there's something about it that it tastes – on the one hand, it tastes recognizable. You can't really place it, though. Well, well when you start adding peanut butter, for one, in like most enchilada sauces, you've got tomatoes, which are tangy. And tomatoes, tomatoes onions, garlic – all go insanely well with uh, uh, at the same vegetarian place she made this west african stew and she did make stuff like with for catering she'd made this had big chunks of beef in it or chicken depending on what you could just either put beef or chicken in it but it was basically a stew with big chunks of carrots tomatoes onions and meat Mm -hmm. and then the sauce around it was Pretty much, you know, the basics of tomato soup mixed with peanut butter with some spicy chilies thrown in there around the edge. And it came out like this bright orange color. And it was unbelievable. And I mean, um, Chinese food and Japanese food, they do a lot of peanut, basically peanut butter, chunky peanut butter mixed with soy sauce for a dipping sauce and that is one of the most you know little sesame oil a little lot of uh soy sauce and about equal amount of peanut butter and it's just unbelievable so delicious and it takes on a totally different complicated flavor you know of salty sweet and tangy and and vinegar there's some vinegar in there too ah yeah, that actually sounds God, like really good. Two True Freaks food podcast started. It might start. It might start two weeks from now when we meet in New York City, because that's basically <laughs> all we're doing is eating the whole time. It sounds like. Well, the uh, you know the thing about it is, when you think about the 
I don't think America gets as, like, and I mean among foreigners. I think Americans understand this very well, but I get the idea, you know, from foreigners that they don't really understand just how diverse American cuisine really is. But, you know, you can go, it's not even all, all that hard to find. I mean, you can go to places just in in Texas, okay? We're not talking about any, any place special here. Just in fucking Texas. You can go to places where they will make... Uh, I don't even know what what to call it. It's basically German type of food, you know, like those time, types of soups mm-hmm. and, and the, that type of, you know, sausage or basically any because apparently the Germans are big on anything pork. Yes. So basically anything that you're likely to find in Germany. And I mean, like in, in terms of traditional, you know, German cuisine. Number one, you can find it here. Number two, it's fucking amazing, mm-hmm. you know, because everything it, it you know how like in. In, all those all those restaurants start with somebody's mom, you know, or it's mo- more likely their grandma now, you know. But yeah. I mean, that's it's usually family recipes, and then they, they you know, several generations ago they came here and were like, "Mom was the cook," and it it's just, you know, Chinese food's different. Chinese food was like developed <laughs> to because authentic Chinese food wasn't flying, so they they came up with something more American. For for what you know, we can say you know sweet and sour pork and stuff like that is is all is you're not really gonna find it like that in China. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, went to um, I went to this sort of Asian fusion restaurant with uh, Pop um, a couple of I guess shit I guess it was a couple months ago now, and this had that you you I, I'm sure you've seen them those kind of slick overproduced looking places where. Yeah. They've got oh, just the right ambience and lighting. I've got four of them within walking distance of my house of different Asian noodle shops. Yeah. Of- and their shtick, it seems to... I mean, they really are a fusion place. There's no single dish you can order that's just one thing. It's. It seems uh, that what they primarily rely on as their base is the sort of the basics of what you'd call like Americanized Chinese food. Mm-hmm. But then they tie-ify it mm-hmm. so that it's got the sort of... It, it's got all the trappings of Chinese food, but it's got Thai spices to it. Yes. And so that, to me, is what the fucking Chinese food needs to be. Because that stuff that they serve... That's more like what they're eating in China. You oh, know? really? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, when th- there was a banh mi place, which is Vietnamese food... And um, oh, it's fu- and and oh, banh mi is delicious, and it's and, and it's made it's street food. You know, it has the the base flavor on it is this really subtly spiced butter that they put all over the bun, mm-hmm. and then you have lots of cilantro, and when they put jalapenos on it, it's raw jalapenos. So everything's like has a fresh. You know, the meat is thin sliced and just cooked in like five seconds and thrown on. So everything has this like really fresh flavor to it. But it's, you know, it's designed more for like, oh, yum, yum, yum. But also like the the people who ran it did traditional Vietnamese food because they knew that there were going to be million, millions, but there, a lot of their customers were Vietnam veterans. Mm-hmm. Who who got used to the food in Vietnam? Yeah, they remember it. Yeah, and then they come here, and it's like I don't want the Americanized version. And I, the the big thing with them is it's like the most simple 
idea for you know the most simple recipe of all is you just get a bowl put in front of you with usually a little flame underneath it to keep the broth it's just you know simple asian fish sauce broth and then you just have a plate with raw meat raw vegetables on it and you dunk them in the broth and leave them there for a few seconds and it it's just long enough to cook them all the way through and boop eat them with chopsticks and you see hmm. like you see the o- old Vietnamese people there and you see like 60 they're all 60 to 70 year old Vietnam veterans now they're all just with a little boiling bowl of broth in front of them and they're the happiest people in the world and it's the you know there's there's I mean it's it's broth and <laughs> raw ingredients you know they, they might have a little little um side thing with some powdery flavor on it and they'll, they'll sprinkle it on some stuff hmm. well you know um it's like a, a month a couple of months ago or a year ago or something you well you maury Clawhammer did this uh <laughs> this uh, commercial for explosive doctor yeah yeah that's the one and you know what i mean i realize it's supposed to be parody it is so impossibly over the top you will never find a place that that actually serves this. But I got to tell you, you know, I'm starting to think that the hair metal hero is spiritually Texan because he and I had the same reaction to that. It's like I would actually Yum. eat at that place. You know, I really <laughs> yeah. would. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's got to be like a satirist's like worst nightmare in some ways where they put out something that is so... And then there's an explosive taqueria a month later. And it's... Yeah, and and, <laughs> and it's and it's like this was supposed to be a joke, you know, and it just it just made me think, you know, God, why can't I find a place like that? Because I would fucking I would live off of those types of tacos, you know. And and another thing that it reminded me of was this you was wouldn't live very long. <laughs> no, you won't. But my God, what a ride! But there was this um, it was supposed to be like a parody of. Taco Bell commercials because there was a time when Taco Bell was extremely experimental with their menu. Yes. And these days they seem to play it a little like a little more safe, but it's all basically they've just added Doritos into their palate so that it's like now we have this with Dorito sauce on it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's like, well, whatever. Anyway, but this guy basically he took a burrito, fried it, slathered it in refried beans put it inside of a taco shell, fried that, slathered that in refried beans, wrapped that inside of, smothered it in cheese, and then wrapped it inside of a tortilla, and then fried that. And I realize, again, this is supposed to be parody, it's over the top, and everything, and oh my god, that just looks so good. I mean, I wanted to order one of those, you know? And it's like I say, it's got to be a satirist's worst nightmare whenever he's taken literally. Well, a lot of, of uh, and a lot of that stuff looks good on paper, but three by three or four bites into it, and you're you know you're just like you're feeling the brick in your stomach with, especially when you're deep frying and deep frying and deep frying. The first three bites would be like, oh, this is amazing, <laughs> and then like five five bites later, your liver's going, hey man, <laughs> what, what are you sending towards me, man? <laughs> What's going on here? Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I say, it's it's 
I'm 48 years old too, so I'm starting to get that more tied in with my where you know. I mean, up until up until my up until the last couple years, I pretty much had a cast iron gullet that you just dump whatever in and it just processes it no matter what. So. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I imagine a lot of the recordings from two weeks from now at Paul's are going to have a lot of <laughs> people going like, this is good, but uh, better clear a path to the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know. I just at least wanted to throw it out there. So, yeah. I just realized I'm going to be sharing a hotel room with like four people after we eat ribs and, <laughs> and Mexican food. <laughs> well, all I ask is that you remember that a lot of hotels, especially big chains, they do have bathrooms outside, like publicly accessible bathrooms outside yeah. Oh, yeah. of the hotel room. So you just may want to keep that in mind. We're staying at the same place we stayed last year, so we got the layout down. And <laughs> that, that actually got utilized. Uh, that, you, that actually happened last year. Like half of us were heading downstairs <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, well, you ready to get started? I am ready to get rolling. Let me get my recorder going. And we're going. Yeah, the last two weeks have been just like... I worked and then I just had to like get out of work and finish up the new... Clone Wars podcast to get out like that night. Last yeah, week, I figured this has got to be got, like your peak season right now. Last week I I had I had I got I did four podcast I had put out four podcasts last Wednesday that I edited on Monday and Tuesday. Jeez. Yeah. I love summer though. I get in that mode of just like yeah, sleep is for the dead. <laughs> by september i'm gonna be a mess i gotta make it through september because i'm going to see elo in new york city in september oh well, that's gonna be fun that's gonna that's like a life goal like the actual EL, like jeff lynn led el and he's got a whole he's actually got a full orchestra instead of tape loops and stuff like that oh i see i like that better you know i mean I, it kind of limits improvisation but then so do oh, tape loops so. oh oh well i'll tell you what yeah either way there's gonna be no improvisation there'll be slightly different guitar solos <laughs> but it's jeff jeff linda is not known for spontaneity live at all so i'm not expecting that but i'd rather see it replicated by an orchestra rather than have the tape loops and know that like the drummer's sitting there with a click track to keep synchronized and stuff like that yeah so yeah, it's 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 one of those things that I'm checking. I'm gonna enjoy the concert, but it, it it won't be like seeing Led Zeppelin, where it's like, what's gonna happen next? You know, I would if I was seeing like Led Zeppelin, I would probably be fucking jumping out of or you know almost any any band of that era that was more improvisational. But Yellow's one of my favorite bands, so now I can now I can say I saw him. And I'll be in New York City all day, so that'll be fun. All right, now do you have the uh, recorder going? I do. All right, now do you need to run to the bathroom or get a drink, do anything like that before we get going? 
Nope, I'm all set up. Alright, then. Alright, so three, two, one. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented, just like always, by two true freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is one of the last times that you're going to hear this version of my theme song. I'm going to come up with something new very soon, and all I can say is, you'll know the new theme song when you hear it. But anyway, this is episode 157, a little something-something that's come to be known as... The Big... Book report. As a matter of fact, this is essentially the last entry in this series because we've talked about just about all all of the volumes, really, and or at least all the volumes that we intend to talk about. So, as I say, this is pretty much the end. So, joining me, just like always, is my old friend and former freak show organizer, Mr. Chris Honeywell. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I, you know, it's so funny now that I've been like two true freaks for five, six years now or whatever, however long it's been since 2008, you get a little ownership over the word freaks. So you get a little tingle down your leg whenever anybody says freaks. It's almost like, hey, they're mentioning me. And so this reading this book was <laughs> just I was chuckling all the time at all the, the freak ref- references. <laughs> me too. But, you know, and I, I hate to start the show off on this note, but it, it, it kind of needs to be said. You know, dude, this <clears throat> this wasn't exactly the home, like as big book volumes are concerned, this wasn't exactly the home run. No. That I guess I was, I mean, because when I heard the word freak, what, I guess what I thought that could at least include was like weird fucked up serial killers that chop off your fingers and use them to play pool and they're just a bunch of fucking weirdos like i'm talking like freaks yeah sick (laughs) degenerate fucks is really what i was thinking and this that's not really what this this is more like a freak show in some ways all through history Mm -hmm. so i don't know i mean like you somebody can either get on board with that or they can not get on board with that but that is nevertheless what this volume is and it just it wasn't really what i was expecting put it that way well, I think there's two reasons for that. And the first reason is Todd Browning's Freaks. Just when you hear Freaks, it, 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 that started the association with Freak Show. Mm-hmm. And the second was about the same time, a little, probably about five, six years before this book came out. 
um, there was a, and I can't remember what what the the imprint was, but there was a series of books called Research, and they just basically were these big, very um, anthology books on underground topics at the time or subculture topics at the time and they were very well researched and they were basically a collection of essays hmm. and they, and uh, they were really popular like the, the most popular one and it's probably and and this is I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing is probably responsible for like all the tribal tattoos and ta- like the resurgence of tattoos in the 90s was one called Modern Primitives and it was about, you know, tribal markings and different ways that, you know, tribes would mark themselves with tattoos and with scarification and stuff like that. But the the other one that was a really big deal was uh was called Freaks and it was all about sideshow freaks. It was you know, an in-depth stories of a lot, a lot of the stories in this one were the story this is almost like the comic version of it in some ways especially when you start getting into you know the sideshow stories and you know the lobster boy and and pt barnum and all that and zip the pinhead so i i think they were playing off the popularity of the the research book you know to do it and it was probably a lot of the same audience you know with young hipstery you know this was the stuff the hipsters were reading in the nineties. <laughs> you know, and and that's the thing. I mean, I realize that there that w- w- when you come right down to it, if you're going to do a comic series like this, eventually you're going to run out of topics. Let's just be realistic. But it just breaks my fucking heart that we've kind of reached the end of the road here, pretty much, and. I just see so much that's left on the table in terms of what the big book series could have been, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I'm just going to put it out there to the audience. You know, guys, I don't know why this series was brought to an end other than just the general decline of the comics industry. I, I think that was about it. I think it it, it was it, it 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 could only exist during that peak point where, you know, I, I the the copies I have, I didn't buy at a comic shop. I bought them at a bookstore. Yeah. That had lots of comics and zine, mostly those zines and magazines. If they had comics, they were mostly underground comics. But this stuff was, you know, it was more readily available. It wasn't just now just sort of pushed into the comic shop, you know. Yeah. You you could you, people who are not comic book readers would see that and go like, "Oh, I'm interested in freaks or or, you know, there was I mean, that was a time when they're like we said before, those when they were printing like serial killer trading cards and stuff. People were really interested in in that sort of stuff, probably due to like Silence of the Lambs type movies. You know, that was sort of a bit big, uh, you know, people chasing profilers, chasing serial killers. So that it was. Yeah, it was very of that time period. And then. When when it all crashed, you know, I just don't. The the internet really takes up, yeah, the the role of what these books did. 
Uh, my roommate and I were talking about it. I just dug out all my old magazines and I found all these magazines that I bought at the same bookstore that I was talking about. And it's funny, they have a lot of the people who are like sort of the comedians like Patton Oswald and stuff were writing for them. And most of them were basically just sort of a proto version of surfing the Internet for junk, you know, for entertainment, you know, little tidbits and stories and anecdotes. And then as the Internet was sort of developing alongside of it, it almost became the the magazine started turning into cut cut and paste stuff right off the internet. Everything yeah. would have a link attached to it and stuff. So it was like, here's where you can find some cool stuff for, for the internet and for you know the good amount of you that don't have the internet. This is some of the stuff we found on it. And look at this crazy picture. And it's redundant now. Why would you want to spend seven ninety nine for a magazine when you can go you can go get it at your fingertips on youtube or wherever you know yeah and i get that but you know it's just at the same time you know there's what i like ultimately and i and i when i really look back on like the blood and guts of what trinus magnus punches reality is it's basically me doing a love letter sort of to comics as a form mm -hmm. and you know this idea I, I don't want this to sound like mean or anything but to me, comics can be so much more than just, you know, heat vision and capes. You know, there's so much more to comics as a form. The stories that you can tell are there's really no other format out there that does what comics do the way that comics do it. And one of the best examples I can think of is nonfiction, you know, and there is a considering that we're talking about, you know, conspiracy theories and hoaxes and stuff and. UFOs and whatnot, maybe it's not necessarily accurate to call it nonfiction necessarily, but you can do sort of, you can do off the beaten path type stuff. And that was the main allure behind doing the big book report in the first place was the fact that you can do so fucking much. Yeah. And, you know, it just, I understand that, you know, what you're saying is kind of true because if all you want is the information then, dude, there are tons of sources for that. But what right. I like about it is the fact that it's a comic book that now has the information, you know? It's, and it's also been compiled. You had an editor who, you know, whether loosely or very, depending on the editor, got got everybody together and said, this is what we're doing and, and you know, shaped some sort of coherence out of it. You know, there, it's it, it becomes a, a piece of art, you know? It becomes, it's it's been made to be, a yeah. presentation to be – it's just – yeah, it's way different than looking up the facts on the internet. But, you know, on the internet you could find somebody might make a cartoon about, you know, Zip the Pinhead and, you know, and it's sort of funny and, and lively and stuff. But there's uh, – it's just – there's the difference between reading a book and getting your information that way that – you know, I mean, people would, you know, I, if I could be an old fogey and be like, oh, it's better to read a book and stuff. But it's just it's different. It it engages different parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. And it would be like being an athlete and going and just working, or, you know, a bodybuilder and just making your arms really large by just watching video or, you know, or you, you got to sort of get it from and, and like, say, reading a comic from the big books. 
you're getting the information. Plus, at the same time, it's usually presented in a humorous fashion. It's underground cartoonists or even even if it's a darkly humorous fashion. Mm-hmm. So your brain <laughs> will put soundtrack in that. It'll put a, you know, you're, you're, when you're reading something, your mind is interacting with the um, the author of it. Whether it's a, if it's just text, you're sort of creating the image and sound from... Not from whole cloth, but just from a description and putting that description in your mind. When you're reading a comic book, you got an extra layer of it because you have the visual there. So then your brain is more free. It's almost like a Looney Tunes. You know, your brain is more free. It's got the picture. Now it starts filling in the sound effects and, you know, and explosions or whatever's going on with and the visuals give you the cue for that. So you're working different parts of your brain. So it's it's good to to wrap it up. Personally, I think <clears throat> books probably if they if they were um doing a I'm sure someone has done MRIs or whatever, but I'm sure a, a book like text that you're really enjoying probably lights up your brain more than just in general more than anything else whereas a movie would probably light up your visual part of your brain brighter and then the other parts maybe less so yeah probably i don't know i just wanted to toss that all out there and you know honestly one of the things that i had in mind for the next of these that we do which i guess that's going to be like the real last one is sort of a roundup but maybe that's a little bit more for the future at least in the here and now if, in case you guys hadn't figured it out yet, what Honeywell and I are going to be talking about is the Big Book of Freaks. So, published in 1996 and written by Gan Wilson, the Big Book of Freaks features an introduction from stage magician turned film star and, quote, scholar of the unusual, unquote, Ricky Jay, who has written a number of books on related subjects. The book features stories on all manner of odd and interesting people, from sideshow freaks to legendary creatures, including giants, the subjects of Todd Browning's uh, not infamous film, famous film, and exhibitors including P.T. Barnum. So I guess in simpler terms, what we're going to be talking about is just basically a bunch of freaks and weirdos from history. So... Pretty straightforward here. So actually, I gotta, I'm in the process of switching out my battery here. So if it sounds like I'm vamping for time, it's because I am, in fact, you vamping know, hey, for vaping. Yeah, vaping. For, yeah, vape vamp. <laughs> you know, that actually leads into something, though. You know, I went to my vape shop yesterday, and they fucking went out of business. Yeah, they're they're all they're they're all going out of business. I think because the, there's been laws passed that are taking effect slowly. Mm-hmm. On the uh, to to you know the tobacco lobbies uh, got a little bit of influence, so basically, you know, as the years go by, there's going to be more and more, you know, laws limiting to what they can sell and what they can do, and that basically is meant to put them out of business. So I think the only people I, uh, you were also saying like your local tobacco store sells products like that. Yeah, that's where it's all. It's going to go there until it's completely outlawed, or the vaping industry makes enough money to lobby themselves back into existence. Well, it just it fucking pisses me off, dude. Because you know the tobacco companies, 
had their chance. You know, I mean, they could have gotten on board with this whole thing like 10 years ago or, or whenever. They tried. It just fucking irritates me, you know? They, I mean, they, they tried to do smokeless cigarettes a bunch of times, but they didn't cut, you know, the technology was not there. So they, their, their early thing, their, their early smokeless cigarettes were things you had to actually light with a lighter and would have, you know, a, a burning element inside of it and w- which would draw hot air over the juice. But they turned out their, the original design of it. And this was about, this was the late nineties, maybe even mid nineties. But the design, when they tested it, they found out that like it was very, it was a very good tool for crackheads to take. They could take it apart, take the the little piece of cotton with the juice out of it, and put their crack in there, and it made a really good crack pipe. So that never made it to the market. <laughs> they decided, and then they just were like, "Ah, it's a bad idea." Well, we talked about that in the in the Big Book of Losers show. Mm-hmm. And how history ultimately came to vindicate smokeless cigarettes, you mm-hmm. know. And I remember hearing a little bit. I, I dimly remember that from the '80s, you know. And I remember thinking, like at the time, how can you have a smokeless cigarette? That is the most fucking retarded thing I've ever heard of. And you know, history has kind of come to speak. I think really clearly on that. You know, it's it's weird how things turned out there. Well, I, the, as soon as I heard the idea for it, I was instantly like, "That is a great idea," because nic- nicotine is bad for you. You know, you get plaque on your. On, I was just talking to someone whose leg went dead because he had plaque in his arteries from smoking, in his leg, and you know they had to put a stent through it and to get his feeling back in his legs and feet. But at the same time, tar and all the carcinogens are really horrible for you. And once you cut that out and basically give someone a nicotine delivery system, yeah, you're admitting, yeah, I, I like slash I'm addicted to the nicotine and want, want to put it into my lungs. But yeah, that's basically true. And I think it reveals all the resistance to vaping reveals the like – basically puritan nature that that underlies our whole country and uh in this case it would be a left-wing puritanism because you know now when vapes first came out it was like hey you could take these anywhere and now last time i rode the greyhound they were just like there's no vaping you know you'll get kicked off for vaping on the bus so fucking retarded. you know um get out of life there's no restaurant or bar anymore that you know they all don't allow it just so you know, they you know, treat, you, just you like, know who does okay. allow it you know who i have never had uh, anybody anybody give me attitude about it whenever i've gone to like hole in the wall mexican food places they just don't seem to fucking care because right? they probably came from mexico where people do what do what they please <laughs> you know where it's not for, you know they're just like hey okay uh, the, if if they were allowed to let people smoke cigarettes in their restaurant they put at, they wouldn't even have a smoking section they just put ashtrays out on all the tables well, and when they first opened up actually that that that, that was the exact setup they had and yeah. then somebody said eh, you can you know you you can't do that but yeah you know what yeah. but when i take my um and the thing is you know honestly the worst branding in the in the history of mankind when you think about it was calling this thing an e-cig 
The yes. minute they they called it that, I mean, they really it's a two edged sword though, because you want to say that it's a cigarette, but at the same time, yeah, it's it yeah it it yeah it killed it killed them in the and so all the people who are anti smoking are just like no no, and it and it comes down to you know people don't want people to vape. A either because they're just on a power trip and they they're like, hey, we made people stop smoking. We'll make them stop vaping, and uh, or it's that Puritan thing where they're just like smoke. You know, smoking is a vice and a sin, and you know it doesn't matter how you do it, and if it even if it doesn't affect me, it's still a vice and a sin, and you should not do it. And so therefore, it's banned. It 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 drives me nuts. The the, and when it comes all down to it, it just comes on down to laziness of most people. Don't and I don't. You know, I understand somebody who doesn't hasn't ever smoked having any interest in what the you know, the reality of vaping is. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just are, and <clears throat> and on top of it, the people are like, look at this huge puff of smoke that I can make and are making a competitive sport. Yeah, um, I've seen that. You talk about stupid. That is stupid. There's what there's and out of them has emerged like one or two people who are like amazing, like artists of it, who can make jellyfish and make them swim through hoops and stuff. And that's that's a weird one. Yeah, I've seen that's that. neat. It's fucked up. But it, for the most part, it's like, dude. And, you know, and it's also the people that you see their their clothing and <laughs> facial hair and stuff like that. That is also a turn off to me. But that's what people picture is vape. You know, it's. Vaping, it's the sport of douchebags sort of thing. And it's just like, hey, man, why not let people go from something really unhealthy to something less unhealthy that doesn't theoretically affect anybody else's health about them? Isn't that like sort of what people want? <laughs> well, and, you know, like there is I don't know if you ever saw it. And and guys, this is not to get partisan or anything like that, but I, I can't not identify this this guy's political party just by saying his name. But. It was like a month or two ago. Um, the representative from uh, I want to say San Diego or something like that. Yes, yeah, so it was Cal somewhere in California. Yeah, uh, there was a uh, some kind of hearing in the in the House, and <clears throat> Duncan Hunter, a former uh, presidential uh, uh, candidate from I think two thousand eight, two thousand eight or no, I think it was two thousand eight. He uh, basically vaped right there on the floor of the house, and basically what he argued is, number one, this thing has helped him quit smoking. Number two, the application for this technology goes far and beyond just nicotine delivery. I mean, when you start thinking about you know different kinds of medicines and shit that can be that, that can be used on this, it already. I mean, that they already use that basic delivery system in hospitals to deliver medicine i've i've vaped asthma medicine <laughs> in a in a hospital and let me tell you it was the last asthma attack i had it was probably like 15 years ago and i had to be like my roommate had to like hold me by my arm to, to get me into the hospital and they vaped some vaped some asthma medicine into my lungs and 10 minutes later i was fine yeah. you know so well, and yeah, like the thing was, the first time I, I really like thought about it, like I was dating this girl whose son had a uh, not my son, this is her son, had a uh, some kind of a breathing issue, right? 
and we're talking like this little, this two-year-old little boy, all right? And so it's going to be a little bit different for him. But basically what – I'm sure a lot of you have probably, probably seen a machine like this, but you basically put this clear plastic mask over the nose and mouth, turn on the machine, and then that pumps um, basically vaporized fucking whatever, Halls or Vicks or whatever the Edison, shit is. yeah. And pumps it. And then what's going to happen is 10 to 1, the kid is not going to like – what's happening. So he's going to struggle. So you need to hold him in place, but he's going to start crying. And that's actually going to, going to help him absorb the medicine a lot faster because of, you know, the way that you breathe when you cry, right? You're, right. It, it, you're, you're breathing deep and then you're exhaling deep and then you're breathing. Deep. And, you know, you want to talk about a good way to circulate medicine. And I, you know, and I, I thought about this and I thought, you know what, this is already one step away from being a vaporizer, like the kind that I use for my for my uh, e-cig, right? It's already one step away from being that. You know, it's really just at this point, if you want to market something like this for adults, just miniaturize it. I'm surprised nobody's put caffeine in one. <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. I mean, you know, because the thing is, the sky what, it truly is the, the limit when it comes to what you can do with this type of technology in terms of getting people what they need and theoretically separating the most unhealthy aspects of say, or just fucking whatever it is, cigarettes in this case, you mentioned it a minute ago, taking out all the tar and whatnot, just giving the people pure nicotine, which however healthy that is or isn't, it's still healthier than smoking a cigarette. This I think we can all agree on, right? And so, you know, it's, what you can do with this in terms of – and I'm not talking about just like recreation here. I mean like real, tangible medical benefit to people. And there are people out there who want to fucking ban this technology because it's a threat to the tobacco companies or it's a threat to Big Pharma or fucking whoever. You know, I just say fuck you to those people. You know, I mean what is it about I, technological – I at least understand their motivation however snaky it is. What really grinds – what grinds my gears – are the people who are against it just because they don't like smoking. Smoking is a vice. It's a weakness. Yeah. And th those are the people that like, you know, that, 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 that enable the, the tobacco company to, you know, so they're, they're sort of enabling the tobacco companies, which they were railing against before. Yeah. They're the useful now fucking idiots come up as an alternative to it. And they're going to squash that down you know, they just become use, useful tools to the people who are making money. Who are really money. damaging society as far as I'm concerned. I mean, fuck the tobacco companies. That's how I look at it. Fuck them. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to blow up at you here, but it's. Yeah, no, I'm 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 not I'm as a smoker. I'm I'm I, I have, you know, I mean, there's that the 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 the, the, the parts of libertarian that I, the libertarian philosophy that I like say, hey, you know, make all the cigarettes you want. People want to smoke. They, you know, as long as people know the 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 benefits and the detriments of smoking, and they want to do it, it's, that's their business. Blah blah blah. But the tobacco, you know, the tobacco companies, it's not that. You you know, of course, it's not that simple. They're like, how can we target children, and how can we make it? You know, yeah, there's you know, all there, sorts there's, of snakiness going there, there is some good news there. You know, I didn't know this, but actually I saw a statistic the other day that actually gave me a <clears throat> gave me a lot of hope. Now, just to kind of flash back, when I was coming up, 
you know, back when I was in high school, like 20 years ago, you know, I personally didn't, well, I knew maybe, I was new and was friends with maybe three or four people who didn't smoke. Everybody else smoked on a semi-consistent basis at the very least, right? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to figure out, like, what percentage of the student body actually smoked, but I would be shocked if it was less than half. You know, I would be just fucking astounded. That's incredible. That's way higher than when I was in high school. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm overestimating it, but it's no, just- no it, it's probably it's probably uh, it's probably accurate. It's and these days, like the statistic that I saw, this was like a week ago or a couple of days ago or something. It was actually something like. It's obviously it's going to vary based upon the local area. But nationally, it averages out to something like probably between five and seven percent. Yeah, it's it, and, and going it's gone down, down. You know, and it's and it's still going down. And Most it's of the not, young people I know don't smoke. It's not being replaced necessarily with with vape. Now, somewhat, yeah, there are people who just go straight to vaping, which I think is fucking insane. <laughs> That's just weird. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, because I, I always thought of vaping, this is like a middle step. It's a means to an end, you know? This isn't where you want to be, you know? The, the so, one time I, I got a vape and used it, I ended up quitting smoking. I, I ended up, like, smoking and vaping, then not smoking and vaping and then vaping less and less until the the e-cigarette I had died and I w- and I just stopped smoking you know for like a year you know I was basically you know the only reason I started was cuz I was like oh I think I'm going to smoke a cigarette now oh yeah right. but otherwise I wasn't faithful words or anything you know like that yeah well boy talk about a tangent <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that um Anyway, I guess to like really get into the big book of freaks, though, as I say, this is basically sort of a look back and kind of a salute to different freaks and sideshow weirdos and all this sort of stuff, sort of, you know, deformed, you know, bearded lady type stuff. You know, it's not just that, but there's a but that's it's that type of thing, I suppose. And so I'm pretty sure you went uh, first last time. So this time I'm going first. And. My first uh, of the two stories that I've got, my my first one, and they honestly, I mean, in terms of, you know, like the timeline, both of my stories actually sort of go together mm-hmm. in some ways. But the first of my stories is Maximus, Emperor of Rome, and this is on uh, page 19. And the story of Maximus, you know, his. Uh, this is one of those times when, you know, the, the guy kind of wears his identity on his on his sleeve with his name. I mean, when he calls himself Maximus, he's not really fucking around. I mean, the guy's a lot taller than your average Roman. And now the reality of the situation is people, a lot of people these days believe that the, the average height for a man back in, you know, the Roman empire was probably something like five, seven, five, eight around there. And so it's really hard to be sure just how tall Maximus really was. But if he was freakishly tall by their standards, you can kind of you can kind of well figure that he he might have topped out like what would you say like maybe six two six three something like that probably yeah 
and, and that's I mean history is gonna I mean history is gonna add height to him rather than take it away you know yeah so I guess if he was to be like proportionally large today I mean we're talking about a guy that's probably a good <clears throat> a good seven feet tall which by I, any standard that's fucking tall I would say like yeah purport, I, I'll bet you like to them he was like Andre the Giant you know yeah and his just when you get to be that fucking big, I mean, just your sheer physical strength and and what you can do basically means that you're going to join the army before too long. And this, along with the fact that he was just really good as a soldier. It basically meant that he was destined one way or the other to ascend to the throne. And if you know anything about Roman politics it's the rare emperor they wanted to keep around for any great length of time. So (laughs) (laughs) if he stuck around, he was either against all odds, universally popular, or more likely he was really good at avoiding his enemies and perhaps taking his enemies out before they could take him out. And so for a guy like Maximus, who he has this, the way he's presented in the story, he's this sort of, you know, aw shucks, corn fed kind of guy. He's not necessarily meant to last very long in the royal court. I mean, he just doesn't have what it takes to to last in that type of a power structure, you know? And sure enough, you know, when they came for him, he fought a good number of them off. But what in, ended up ultimately doing him in was seeing the body of his dead son, after which he collapsed on the ground in a paroxysm of grief and his what remained of his assassins, the few he'd left alive, they took him down and that ends the story of Maximus. But, you know, when you think about it, this is, you know, there are certain things in history or certain stories that you come across or certain historical characters or something like that. You don't need to be like a movie executive to see movie potential here. You know, I mean, if ever there was a story that like you could, I mean, you could have Ridley Scott just for nostalgia's sake, I guess. The first thing I thought of was Ridley Scott would probably love to get his hands on this. And, you know, the beauty of it is he's an historical figure, so it's not like you have to pay the guy's fucking estate or anything. And, you know, this could be – I could just see a lot of a lot of potential to it. I mean, basically, you can get any director to do this as long as that director's name is not Mel Gibson. But <laughs> – I would go see Mel Gibson's version of this. Uh, I, I, You know, crazy, crazy aside <laughs> – Crazy sometimes helps with filmmakers. Yeah. <laughs> crazy and outspoken is kind of a filmmaker trait. So, yeah, I Terry Gilliam, I, I'm looking I, pretty I, much I, right I at you. Passion of the Christ with a with a passion, actually. You hated it. I I did not. I thought I uh, the 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 snuff film uh, moniker was what totally. That was my first like where I started thinking, like this is just. It's just a exercise in pure cruelty, you know. It was it was a it was a gore movie, you know. Once it once it got going, it was as far as like the drama of it and the way he filmed it and stuff. I thought it was great, but like to the end, it was just like, oh, this is just grueling. And uh, you see, that's so funny because I took I I loved Apocalypto. Oh, I never saw that, but that was really good. You know, the uh, what I took from the Passion of the Christ, like what sticks with me, like to this very day, 
really there are two things. First, there's the languages, and I just love the language, mm. uh, the languages in that movie. But even more than the languages, I love the fucking film score, dude. That that John Debney score is one of the top five. Well, the cinematography in it is great. The acting in it is great. Um, you know, everything about it is great. I just don't agree with Mel Gibson's take, I guess, on it. But at the same time, you know, it is an intensely personal <laughs> film, you know. It is the work of an individual. So there, there would be, if he it's did a version of this... It's the ultimate indie film. I mean, you know, yeah. even if you don't like it. You know? I don't know. I, 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 I say episode one is, but it's same idea. Okay, well, you know what? I would I would differ on, on episode one, at least in that if you you have to go far enough back in history. But the basic roots of Star Wars, or let me rephrase that, of episode one, basically comes, comes down to something that is legally owned by 20th Century Fox, at least at that time. Yeah. And whereas The Passion of the Christ, from the germ of the idea until opening day was completely Mel Gibson's property in as much as he was the one that made the thing. Now, obviously, it's based on the Bible. I get I that. I was just going to say, but the, yeah, and then there's the Bible, but... But even that's not really not a corporate sue. property. You know? <laughs> so, it, yeah, I mean, it's all up for debate, I suppose. But the point is, even if it's not the ultimate indie film, it's still indie film. And, you know, I got to tell you, you know, the older I get, I mean, I have less use for indie film as sort of like a genre because where the fuck is indie film these days anyway but like where do you find it you know but I at least like the idea of somebody who who's not beholden to anybody he makes the movie he wants to make on his own dime and in his own time and you know what maybe it lacks all the glitter and polish of something that was directed by fucking McGee or whoever or Michael Bay but it's still comes right from the heart and right out of his own wallet in many yeah, cases it's, it's a piece of auteur work and i just to me i just i find that on some level to be a little bit more yeah, respectable i suppose you know and i'm not trying to like insult you know michael bay or anything because i've got nothing against him but let's face it i mean if ever there was a mick movie director yeah he's the mick movie director i mean yeah. honestly probably the most if you appreciate Mick movies, he's he's the master. He's like the Spielberg of Mick movies, and I think yeah. he chose that. And you know, as an artistic choice or whatever. But you know, he was like, "I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be a commercial director." You know, and that's a art and craft unto itself. But I definitely always put more credit to the to the. Yeah, and I would give and and much as I don't like passion of the christ i'm gonna give it more more of my uh, time and attention than a michael bay movie and well, michael bay's tried to make you know a little more complicated movies and stuff <laughs> it's been kind of embarrassing well the reason that mel gibson as a filmmaker is always going to have my respect oddly enough it really has nothing to do with the passion it it actually comes down to braveheart you know, he's one of the few actors that that this that a, that a movie studio allowed to to sit in the director's chair, and he actually made something that's not just decent. He actually made something that's like really entertaining. It's a lot of fun. 
And again, you talk about the score for that movie. Holy shit, that is a movie score right there, Hoss. It's, it's a great example of him. It was, you know, it, and it was so, it was ahead of its time because it's big. It, and I mean, I, well, I think it was like a groundbreaker and like he was like, I'm going to portray, you know, portray the battlefield as it really is. So there was a degree of realism to it, but he also brought the Hollywood, you know, the Hollywood melodramatic story to it, which could be deadly to Braveheart. But boy, it, it sucked you right in, you know. Yeah. I mean, I remember sitting in the theater watching Braveheart, going like, "Ah, whatever," you know. At that point, Mel Gibson, people were kind of start. He was like Schwarzenegger; they were starting to joke about it, you know, Mel Gibson in his latest action movie or stuff, but. Boy, about 15 minutes into Braveheart, they were shutting up about that. <laughs> and, it, and and there's parts of it that, like, if you took that scene out of context and saw it without no, ever seeing the movie, you'd be like, oh, that's, some che- that's a cheesy Hollywood speech and stuff. But he knew how to work to fit that into the rest of the movie to make it work to where you're not you're, you're caught up in the emotion of it, of the moment. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah. And, and and it worked and it was one where like it had a romantic element that worked for the ladies but yeah, then you, when you pretty head, much have to have that too so he chose well <laughs> but he was still able to put you know the damage that a human head would take when someone clubbed them in their you know it's like okay they had a metal headpiece on but if you bash that metal headpiece and deform it their head's deforming inside of it along with it you know yeah, it's just something you never saw in movies like that. You just see arrows and swords go into people and they fall down. And it's like, no, there were a lot of ways to die on the battlefield, and they were all horrible. Here they are, <laughs> and it got and the and the women were like <gasps> all through it, but none of them were coming out going, "What an awful violent movie!" You know, at the end of it, and it had it had more gore than like some zombie movies have. Yeah, so. Yeah, it, it was – when you think about it, like looking back at it, it, it is really weird how well-regarded that movie was considering how groundbreaking uh, and original a lot of that – a lot of that was in terms of just content, you know? Because, because it, it was the kind of movie that no matter who you were, it won you, you, know, it won you over. It got you sucked into it even, well, at, even at three hours long. You know, it was a, it was a short three hours. Yeah, <laughs> And that's that's not easy to do. You no. Know? Um, that have having been said though, I mean, I I, I stand by it. I don't. I, I watched it when I, I saw it in the movies. I was just telling somebody about this. It's strange. Strangely enough, I was with my girlfriend and her parents had a cabin up in the Adirondacks, and it was in one of those little Adirondack towns. It's been totally settled by, you know, two or three. It was like two or three Dutch families. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the town was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and athletic-looking. Hmm. All the kids looked the same. It was very Stepford-y. Small, it was super small-town country, you know, in the mountains. And uh, so, you know, my girlfriend's like, we're, go- we're going to the movies. And I'm like, well, what's playing? She goes, it doesn't matter what's playing. You'll see. And we pull up to somebody's house, and everybody's parking on their lawn, and they had their and you go in the front door of their house and they had, you know, where, where it, the rest of their house blocked off. But they had a little popcorn stand ticket booth and, you know, soda. And and one of the kids was working the popcorn booth and grandma was working the soda dispenser. And then you went out back into the barn 
where they had a real projector and a real movie-sized screen and folding chairs, and the whole town came out. Like, my girlfriend and I were sitting there with everybody like, oh, who are those people, <laughs> you know? And this whole blonde-haired, blue-eyed, they, they were very, I can't remember, I, I think they were um, Dutch, Dutch Orthodox Christian. Hmm. And so it was a really, like, you know, religious community, and... And boy, they were loving Braveheart. <laughs> it was, you know, I was like, oh, how are these people going to react when heads, you know, with these heads exploding? And they were sucked right into it. And everybody was walking out going, what a wonderful movie that was, you know. <laughs> Gra- you know, grandma type people in the country. So, Well, like I say, I mean, I, I kind of stand by it that I don't necessarily need to see Maximus as directed by... Mel Gibson, but I guess you know maybe it wouldn't be. I don't I, know. I I I I'd argue for it, but I'd rather. My first thought was Ridley Scott. Of <laughs> He's course. everybody's first choice for. Memphis. Or like an HBO series. <laughs> I think HBO was it. HBO did the the Rome series. I don't know if they might still be doing it. I don't know. Yeah, that, no, that's a that's a, a good. I don't know. I just figured that for something like this, you'd want big budget, big scale. I don't know. I mean, whatever. Maybe you could do it on HBO. Big I don't know. story, big effects for a big man. Mm. Well, anyway, so you got anything else on uh, Maximus? No, I'm good on the Maximus. I I, I figured you were going to pick this just because it was close to your name. <laughs> yeah, well, and there was that too. So, <laughs> well, anyway, the other one that I chose is, this is on page 54, Freaks Made to Order. And basically... This deals more with, I'm just going to call them midgets because, you know, calling them little people, what the fuck? But anyway, so they're fucking, they're midgets. And if that doesn't bother, (laughs) you know, and and if that bothers you, just feel free to not listen. I'm okay with that. So, but anyway, basically the popularity of midgets, especially in ancient times. And let's face it, you know, from just a strictly natural point of view, the... The supply of midgets is it's eventually going to run dry, and in order to meet the demand to have midget servants running around, as was classy in ancient Rome, you know, later in the Roman Empire, they would have to basically artificially deform children so that they would be midgets. And there are different techniques for doing so. Arguably, the Chinese perfected it by basically putting uh, infants inside of clay pots and then letting them grow up to a point after which, because they're being constrained by the clay pot, they just can't fucking grow anymore. And so when they're fully grown, quote unquote, you basically break them out of the uh, clay pot, and then now they can go off to whatever fucked up weird destiny that they have. Now, on the one hand, it's tempting to say that, you know what, that is really barbaric and cruel and people, I mean, the fact that, you know, you you instantly want to say that people shouldn't do this is so it just captain obvious goes without saying it just it almost defies words and you know just this barbaric cruelty on the one hand but on the other hand i want you guys listening to just kind of think are we really any better because midgets are except for that dude in game of thrones midgets are basically objects of mockery and scorn even in our own culture i mean you've got stuff like Austin Powers or basically anything directed by Jackass. Yeah, anything. Rock. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say anything directed by the Farley brothers in the early 2000s. You know, I mean, the you know, we're not really 
much better than people were thousands of years ago when it comes to midgets and stuff, guys. So anything anomalous can be funny. Someone with a huge nose, yeah, super tall, super small. It, it becomes it. It, it becomes I. Yeah, and I mean that's a fucked up part of society, but like you know, and I and I imagine midget people, midget people, Jesus, <laughs> the, the the midget people, it's just like the jolly fat guy, you know, you're the jolly the fat kid in school, and so you learn to use your sense of humor because everybody goes, oh, I like him, he's the happy go lucky fat guy, <laughs> you know, and it's the same, and, and a lot of midgets so go like, oh, you know. I'm not going to end up being a steel worker when I grow up, but, you know, they'll pay me to be, you know, I mean, if you're a midget, hey, you know, and they're making Star Wars movies, you got a job. Yeah, dude. You know? I mean, midgets, you've got it made anytime, like, especially now that you if know, you Star Wars movies that. are back. Star Wars is owned by midgets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a guarantee for for a job, you know, and uh but, You'd be Kenny Baker's stuntman. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's just harder for a midget to become, you know, say Neil deGrasse Tyson than an entertainer. It's like, hey, you know, and you could tell that that's not doesn't like uh, Vern Troyer from the Austin Powers show when they had him on. I, I can't remember the name of the show. It was a reality show where they had all the celebrities living together. One of the earlier shows, and I believe it was on MTV, it was like thrown together or something like that. And they had Vern Troyer on there, and it turned out he was a bad alcoholic and, you know, was like drinking till he was passing out and peeing on himself and stuff like that. Prop, probably a combination of like, you know, what, what am I perceived by as a world? Mini me. Yeah. <laughs> And, and what probably, a weird fate that would be, you know? And being a really huge person or a really small person comes along with horrible health problems, you know? It's not yeah. – you're just not a regular sh shrunk-down person. You they, they don't have a very long lifespan. The tall people, their muscles and bones start breaking down when they get older. And short people have – you know, their livers are messed up and, you know, so – there's a lot of misery associated with their life too. And, and just like, I could totally see, I could, there's some people who roll with it, enjoy it. And some people who deep down are just like, you know, when it all comes down to it, I'm just, you know, a court jester, you know, I come out and dress up like, like, um, Dr. Evil and everybody laughs and they're, they're not saying, Oh, what a special guy you are or whatever. And there's some people who do it, and, and I imagine it's because as midgets aren't born actors, you know, some of them, some of them are and go on to Game of Thrones or to become Billy Barty or um, what's what's the the, uh, the other guy that in, the, from India who was in, um, he played all the Oompa Loompas in the remake of Willy Wonka. Mm. and was in he's in Wes Anderson movies and he's a really good actor but he's like you know really tiny guy and he's kind of funny but he's also puts an extra layer on it because he's a good actor but like a lot of them are just like regular people who you know here throw on this Jawa outfit and and wave your arms around although mostly those were little kids but the same idea well you know there, that actually kind of reminds me of something this is many years back now like 15 years ago or something but i went to the uh, i went to the movies with this chick that i was dating 
at the time. Uh, you remember the, uh, the the chick that I got in that car crash with we talked about in the last episode? Yes. Same chick, right? So we went to the movies. And, you know, even back then, you know, this movie, this movie theater was starting to go to the dogs a little bit. You know that there's that weird time when a neighborhood or an area or what have you, it starts turning. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's not as seedy as it will be in ten years, but it's the, but the they transition can't pay is for the upkeep like they did before. Yeah, yep. and you're getting a kind of a rougher element hanging there. And anyway, so it's it was starting to make that. So it's not the wild west like it is these days, but it was starting to make that transition. And there were it, it was a little more common now to see like minor dis- disturbances and stuff like that. And so I say all of that by way of introduction because she and I went up there to see some, I don't fucking remember. It was some movie and there was this big gaggle of, you know, teenagers and she and I were not so far away from our high school years ourselves back then, but it was still in our rear view mirror. And so we didn't want to have to be too close to the teenagers cause that's just tawdry. And, you know, they were hollering and shouting and stuff. And the next thing I know, I, I happened to look down and I saw, you know, what the cause of, you know, all the all the noise was. Some guy was trying. I don't know who the instigator was, but there was basically um, a conflict between a, a, just your sort of standard issue, stupid ass teenager. And a midget. Oh, geez. And, you know, making fun of them and everything. And, you know, I honestly, you know, the the stuff that the guy was saying, I actually had about half a mind to go over there and bash that guy upside the head. But, you know, it's not my fight. So just left it alone. And it was like at that moment, the minute I looked down and I saw, you know, the midget, I saw the look in his eyes and I know what that means. You know, uh, when a man makes that face. Run for cover because you're about to get smashed. Yeah. And sure enough. This is somebody who might have been, you know. People that pick on people like that don't realize this might not be this guy's first rodeo and taking down someone picking on him, you know? And I don't th- – I mean that would have occurred to me, you know? Like the big guys, like the really big guys, how many fights has your average like big guy ever really had to be in? Yeah. Your average little guy, he's probably had to fight a, a lot. You need to watch yeah. out for him. So that's exactly what happened. I saw the midget. He just took off running. He jumped into the air and clocked this guy like right in the face. He went down like a sack of dirt. And then the midget was just on top of him and just wailing away. And the thing was, on the one hand, I mean, like this guy's nose, I could I've been in enough fights. I know what a broken nose looks like. And that's it. But the thing was, he was beating the piss out of this guy. And everyone that was circling around were laughing. And it's like they didn't seem to connect. This can happen to me, too. This was not a lucky punch. This guy yeah. knows how to fight. And if he did that to him, he can do that to me. And it's like that wasn't sink. It's like they're still not. He just knocked a guy. He, he broke a guy's nose and then knocked him down on the ground with one punch. And they still didn't seem to understand the danger they were all in. And, you know, you're playing with fire, dude. I'm sorry. You know, and it's just it's fucked up whenever you see stuff like that, you know. Yeah, well, the guy on the the guy with the broken nose wasn't <laughs> wasn't going to be laughing for a long time. I I I would I would hope that they were laughing at the guy who got his nose broken, but I know from reality that's probably not the case. 
Well, I don't, look, I don't know. Maybe, but you know, it's in just, a perfect world that would that guy would be like the laughing stock forever. You know, he would be the guy that got taken down. By, well, actually, if it was in high school, he probably was. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, they don't show you a whole lot of mercy in in high school no. when it comes to that stuff. So no, especially if you get knocked out in a movie theater by a midget. That's just. How are you going to wash that off? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like the thing is, I mean, like the demographics of that exact movie theater, like the reason they built it right there is because of the demographics that they're pulling off of. You know, you're basically it was right in that sweet spot where the movie theater was attracting business from literally. I'm not kidding. Like four or five or six different school districts. Oh, geez. Yeah. So there is literally no place you can ever hope to go in within probably a good 20, 30 mile radius where someone, even if they didn't necessarily see and then recognize you as the guy that got his ass kicked at the movie theater by a midget, they've at least heard your story. And they may yeah. want to ask why your nose is crooked, you know? <laughs> so I'd like to think, you know what, on some base kind of cruel level, that may be the best justice that guy can hope for, you know? Right. <laughs> Under the circumstances. Under the circumstances, certainly. <laughs> That's basically what I have uh, have for this one, though. So, uh, now Jesus, you've got... how do I top a midget fight in a theater? I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> That's why you guys listen to this show. And I'm telling you that uh, even when we go beyond the big books, you're still going to get your midget fights in theater. Don't worry. We're, we know how to serve it up. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> well, I, I just I, – before I get to my first two, I just want to have a couple general notes on the whole book. Mm -hmm. um, there was a great Cthulhu re reference in the first chapter where one of the ticket buyers in the introduction – was just a, this octopus thing and said, I don't, it's NGMF hyphen H, which is one of the words in the Cthulhu summoning. Um, and what page is chant. that? It's in the, it's in the very first thing, the introduction, the Gon Wilson's introduction where the Barker is like selling tickets to people. And yeah. Okay. I'm looking at it right now. It's on page eight. The octopus guy in the, in the cloak. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a random Cthulhu reference. And I had to go, I had to, I actually have a, a carved Cthulhu and I had to look on the back and I'm like, Oh, sure enough. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I didn't make the connect, but you're right. That's exactly what this is. I just, I didn't make that connection. That's fucked up. Uh, it just means Gon Wilson's a, a a Lovecraft fan, but um. Oh, everybody's a Lovecraft fan these days. This 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 one I just wanted to note it had on page one hundred six a, a a little anomalous story in this. Sometimes they had little stories that just would sort of give you an overview of something almost before you went into that section of the story. But this one was just like that, like the most embarrassing date I ever went on. It was almost like it was from a different comic, you know, of just like it was more of the indie, you know, personal experience thing than they usually have in the big books. And uh, like we said earlier, I th this is one of the weaker big books, maybe just for me because I'm familiar. There's a lot of repetition in it. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like the crime one 
where you, you see a lot of the stories are are very similar with different people or different time periods, but they follow the same arc. And there's like three major freak arcs. There's the freak who's turned their disability into an advantage and is intelligent and sort of owns it and lives their life out. And then there's the freak that's the, you know, just complete victim and, you know, sort of that they get that, that, you know, they have their publicity and stuff, but they go downhill because they're they're a damaged person. And then there's the ones that sort of start out damaged and then work their way towards being independent and, you know, a fully formed person besides being the, you know, the 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 um, bearded lady or, or whatever. Yeah. And and you just sort of see that repeated over and over with variations on it, and um, so my first one was on page one twenty four or one twenty five, um, and that was the uh, ugliest woman in the world. Yeah. Um, which you don't. I, I put her last name as Julia Lent because she married her, you know, the her promoter guy, and that hers is just is one of the saddest, craziest arcs ever because you could tell she was an intelligent person you know and a, and a talented person and was just I mean a la- first of all labeled the ugliest woman on earth and using that as your your way of def- you know being defined and you know the exploitation by her quote unquote husband that went to the extreme of just vileness to where he actually, you know, mummified her and, and, and their baby and just continued making money off them mm-hmm. even after their death, and which is horrifying. But then it gets the other twist where he finds another woman like that, marries her, continues his exploitation till he goes nuts and is is locked up and she gets all the money and ends up wealthy and live it's 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 so strange you know almost like vin, not vindicating but you know getting a little karma from the other woman's life who was just you know from beginning to end was just probably horrifying yeah this whole thing is just a sad fucking story dude all of it and that's, and that's the general. Um, it, it was funny before this. You we you know you you um, IM'd me to tell me what your two choices were, and you're like, I I left PT Barnum because you're just like assumed that I was gonna pick PT Barnum, which I mean that's I, very natural for you to assume. I had to actually think about whether that was the first thing I thought was like, do I want to do PT Barnum? But I don't know how I feel about PT Barnum. P.T. Barnum was one of those people who was in the middle where he was an exploiter, but at the same time, he pulled a lot of people out of some shitty conditions and put them in a more elevated shitty condition. You know, it was a weird thing, but he did not seem like a cruel exploiter as much as just sort of like a hairy mud styled con man. But he never, I never really like vibed with him. And maybe it was because 
with it from an early experience of the circus came to our small town and it wasn't like Ringling Brothers Circus. It was just a traveling circus and it was one of the saddest things that I ever saw. Like the animals were not happy animals and the whole thing just it wasn't like I pictured circuses of like it was all that. But everybody, every the animals and the people were just sort of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, our entire town was just like, woohoo! And it was very depressing for me as a kid. I was like, don't go woohoo! This is sad. Yeah, <laughs> this is very sad. And and P.T. Barnum's always had a tinge of that to all of the freak stuff. Has always had a tinge of that to it. And I think you know the ugliest woman in this world story sort of like epitomizes all the worst aspect of just like taking a human being that has something distinctive about it and just exploiting it to the point of where you use that person up, discard them and don't even discard them, still use their corpse to, to travel around and make the corpse of your wife and son, you know, or I didn't, I think it was a son. I thought so too. You know, look, as far as, you know, the uh, the P.T. Barnum thing is concerned, I mean, I'm not going to say that the guy was an angel or anything like that, but at the same time... He was brilliant. Well, and there is that, but, you know, people talk about him as the consummate showman and all of these things. He was very much a man of his time, so on and so forth. But really, like you said a second ago, you know, he took these sort of societal cast-offs and gave them three hots and a cot. Now they had to, they had to make a living, and let's face it, in I think a very dehumanizing kind of way. But here's the thing. Oh yeah. They were still making a living. They were no longer shunned, and well, they, they were able to eat. They were able to live. Some of them had families, and you know I hate to say he it. He gave I mean, them a level of dignity. He he gave them some. Di- whereas before they were treated like caged animals, he did treat them like. Pe- there's a there's a little bit of John Waters in there, to it too where. You know, I, I mean, when when you're that carny type of person, and I've worked in carny type environments, and uh, and my roommate works at the uh, used to work at the Renaissance Fair for many many years. You look at all the, the those people wandering around at the Renaissance Fair that you're selling flower garlands to. You're looking at them like they're marks. You know, you're you're like, oh, here comes money bags here. How much money can we get by doing our stupid dance from this guy? You know. And it becomes an art to like extract as much from the 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 fat dumb masses as you as you can. And and I and I imagine that P. T. Barnum probably um, was more empathetic to the freaks in his show than to the people who were paying for him. You know, when when I think I, I get the impression that when they joined P. T. Barnum they they were joining you know maybe on the midway and with the carnival they had some fellowship with their fellow freaks you know more like commiseration but like with pt barnum it was like we're bringing you into the family and you 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 know yeah we're going to put you on display but we're putting you on display to get money from the, those idiots out there and blah 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 and we're going to pay you well and you can actually live like a real human being and not like, you know, not like an animal, an animal that's just feeding someone else, you know. Yeah. And uh, 
Which it's still exploitive, but at the same time, it was well, like that's the thing. Who's being exploited now? You know, it was. Oh yeah, yeah. It, well, well, it's it's the same as people who go like that poor stripper girl, you know, the, uh, the unfortunate circumstances that brought her there, and that very College. well might be true. That very well might be true. She could be a drug addict. She could have, you know, psychological issues from abuse or whatever that brought her there. But there's quite a few of them who are just like, yeah, poor me. I'm making $800 cash a day and socking it away, you know. And when they're 40, you know, when they're 35 years old, they've got a master's degree in something and are living in a nice house. So you never know, you know. And and they're they're also going, hey, if these stupid guys want to throw money at me just because I got my skin out, you know. I don't have to go home and sleep with them. I don't even have to talk to them if I don't want to or look at them. So if they want to throw that money at me, so yeah, it's it's who's getting exploited and or it's it it I think it reaches at best sort of a midpoint where it's like you're getting what you want, I'm getting what I want. <laughs> Square deal, you know. Yeah. So um I think P.T. Barnum wasn't quite that, but he was he was the best step towards that you were going to get, especially during that time period, which was, you know, yeah, you just you didn't have the options if you were deformed or uh, weird or disabled in those days that you do now. You know, there wasn't as much of an in the infrastructure for people like that were was were basically variations of the poorhouse, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, it's just what I've always assumed is that these people were going to be used and abused their entire lives. And so there's fundamentally no difference between being used and abused in poverty versus being used and abused uh, as a, as a star on the international stage. It's just that one of those is going to allow you to make a living, you know, have, you know, dinner every night, you know, have a place to sleep. So, I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, I want to be careful. I'm not exactly advocating anything on the one hand. But on the other hand, let's face it. I mean, this chick got to see fucking Moscow. Right, I've never right. been to Moscow. Right, exactly. No, well, when you read it, it's like she learned a bunch of languages. She learned how, like, she's she is a more round, well-rounded person than most people nowadays. You oh, know, gosh, she, yeah. She could sing, dance, play instruments, speak different languages. She was, you know, she was an avid reader. So, you know, she was not living a a life devoid. Uh, You know, she wasn't being kept in a box or or anything like that. But at the, yeah, at the same time, that just, and, and, and to this day, look at, um, and who knows what the relationship between her and her her handler were i i obviously don't think it was a real connection because because you just don't you don't mummify your wife and take her you maybe mummify your wife if you're crazy norman bates style and keep her in the bedroom sitting in her favorite chair but you don't mummify no, you, you just fucking and, and charge people a quarter to come look at the the body of the ugliest woman in the world who used to be your wife and oh there's our kid next to her he died too you know so that uh, that makes me think he, he wasn't pt barnum like in his his intentions but you know 
you, you know, I mean, to this day, stuff like that happens. What's her name from Canada? The the um, who's saying the Titanic? Theme. Oh, Celine Dion. Yeah. Celine Dion. You know. Yeah, she's, she's been got, fucking a mummy for a long time already. Right, yeah. right. Well, he was her manager, and he uh. was the manager, and he started thinking, someday this woman's going to become so famous, she's going to realize that she don't need me. She can succeed on her name alone. I get, I'm get. i off the money train then. I better start, like, you know, this was probably when she was, like, 15 years old. He's like, I probably just might as well start working my daddy issues on her till she's 18 and then when i marry her boom half the you know i'm my own manager too you know so and maybe they do actually love each other you know or whatever but it's not like that stuff and that that way of thinking has gone away you know or or with the passage of time it's just changed and moved into a a different sector you know but it's still there I suppose. And it creeps me it creeps me out. And speaking of creeping me out, another thing that might have given me an attitude a, a, about the whole freak thing in general is page 168. Lobster Boy. Grady Style Sr. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a weird one. This is this is the this is your your bona fide evil freak. Now he was in that mid. He wasn't P.T. Barnum style. He was in the the, um, you know, Carney touring thing, but he was in the 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 decent one where they they made decent money. That that day. he lived in, uh, uh, Gibsonton, Georgia, which is like a famous. It's, um, a lot of trailers and small houses, but it was where ever all the all the carnival people and especially the the freaks, like lived there when they weren't touring, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, it turns out Grady Stiles was just basically an asshole. He was one of those, he was a drinking, smoking, cheating, wife-beating kind of guy. He was just a ang- angry person. And and what's funny is uh, you'd be like, well, okay, you could say, you know, maybe be deformed with his lobster claws and stuff. But it was like a point of family pride, you know they were they were more excited when they had a kid with the condition that that made them have the quote unquote lobster claws. It's just like basically their fingers fused together into a into a you know look like a, a somewhat of a lobster claw. <laughs> yeah, it's shaped like it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so it wasn't as if he was traumatized or bitter about his deformity. It was almost like that that was the moneymaker. It just reminds me of something from like, you know, uh, uh, Great Depression story of the cruel or, you know, um, Oliver Twist Fagan sort of person where he's just the cruel head of the household. And uh, he ended up having having a couple kids and they would go on tour with him as lobster boy but he he ran afoul of his wife and his wife left him but when she came back after he'd quit drinking um she came back with us what would be his stepson and uh once he stopped drinking and then of course he started again and started beating her up again 
And so she hired, she and her son hired someone to shoot him. Just walk in and uh, blow him away. And I remember it made the news. But the the shocking part of it, and and as a kid, I'd always thought I I got the stepson confused with the actual son. So I'd always thought that I'd shook hands with a murderer because I thought it was Grady Styles' actually actual son. That's getting to my story is mm-hmm. uh, my first my first experience with. Yeah, I didn't want to spoil it, but yeah, I, I wanted to hear this. Um, <laughs> I used to go to the state fair with my dad all the time. And uh, and my dad and my grandfather, like I recognize it now. They spent a lot of time when I was a kid with my sister and I, and and it was a sp- and and usually you would think this would be something like mother and grandmother, but but you know my grandfather was always like taught me any like empathy I have with animals. You know I I love animals now, and I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. Um, in his backyard with like seeds in my hand, like sitting really still to get um, chipmunks to climb up and take them and stuff. And, you know, my grandfather could stick his arm out with uh, with birdseed in it out his window. And he had all the local birds outside would land on his arm and eat birdseed out of his hand and stuff. And my dad was more on the side of explaining empathetic stuff with people. And I remember like going to the our local county fair and seeing um i think it was called the ape girl and it was basically uh uh you know just it was a it was a special effect there was a woman a hot woman in a bikini and then there would be with in a cage that was electrified and then there was a strobe light would flash, and she would you would, she would turn into a gr- into an ape, and then start grabbing the electrified bars, which would start sparking and breaking, and then like run towards the audience, and everybody would run out. Mm-hmm. And I saw that as I was probably eight years. It was probably around the same time I saw Star Wars. You know, seven eight years old, between seven and nine years old. And I would just wander the county fair and I saw that and I was just like, oh, my God, that was amazing. It scared the shit out of me. I I thought it was real. And then I started thinking about it and was like, wait, why? So why aren't they chasing the ape girl around right now? (laughs) She got loose. So we were at the state fair and uh, we went to like one exhibit that was it was all real stuff. It was like a few live lizards and snakes, but it was also some informal, some, you know, tarantulas and formaldehyde and stuff like that. And I was fascinated by it. And then we saw the lobster boy and I was like, dad, I want to see the lobster boy. And he goes, do you really want to see the lobster boy? And he's he's like, it's different than this other stuff. And I was just like, I want to see the, you know, I want to see the lobster boy. So he, he, uh, it's very similar to like that actually embarrassing date story. You know, we were in line and I'm like, come on, come on, let's go see the lobster boy. And my dad's like, all right. So we go in and it was like a pen with um, a round raised area in the back. And there's Grady Styles on on a, sitting in a chair with a microphone hooked up to a tinny little speaker. And he's like, I am the lobster boy. 
born with two horrifying claws instead of hands. Blah, blah, blah. I can break a tin cannon. And it was the sound of someone who is just completely flat and broken and going, did not want to be there, you know, doing his spiel for the, the millionth time. And then he goes, and this is my son. And and meanwhile, it's my father and I and like four or five other people who've just wandered in. So, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this, but it's it's you're you're looking another human in the eye. You're walking. It's it. it I'd never experienced the weird feeling of you've walked into this room and now you're looking at a person who's displaying themselves as a thing you know, is this sort of, you know, monstrosity or whatever that you're supposed to gape at and you instantly start feeling bad. You know, you're like, wait a minute, you know, this guy does not seem happy with his his situation or whatever. What is what is going on here? And you you, you want to almost be like, uh, sir, are you OK? You know, over there. And I'm sure that's all built into the dynamics of the freak show, too. And then he introduced his son, who had to be about my age or just a little bit younger. And he had to, and Grady Styles was just sitting in a chair. He wasn't going anywhere. But his son came out, you know, basically walking with his hands, you know, lifting himself up and scooching along on his hands. And he's in a, you know, a dirty old T-shirt that's you know it's not filthy but you can tell it's like one of his three t-shirts that he's had forever and dingy and and the kid's got a blank look on his face and then the kid comes up and is wants to shake hands with him my dad goes go shake hands with him you came in here you're gonna shake hands with him and i go over and i shake hand and i'm looking at a kid like shaking hands touching you know somebody the same age as me and looking at him and they're just like his dad he's just like and you know i walked out of there and it was like not looking back at it you know i see what you know my dad was explaining he was like the you know there are two people they have a physical deformity and you know how do you feel about that and i was like i don't know if i like that and he's like that's good (laughs) yeah exactly yeah that would be kind of my reaction yeah (laughs) and uh he was he was like, yeah, it's it's different than looking at at a, at a snake or the ape girl, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I like that at all. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's some a- that, that aspect of it is also uh, those feelings is also a way for them to get more money out of you out of guilt, <laughs> yeah. you know, because you could leave tips there, too. So you're walking out and it's just like uh, five dollars, you know, or whatever. Yeah, no, they deserve something, man. Living mm-hmm. life like that. <laughs> Jeez. Similar to a panhandler with a deformity or something, you know. Well, and, you know, this is going to sound mean, I guess, but you know, the uh uh I I I would imagine this has got to be pretty standard operating procedure now in a lot of major metros these days. But panhandlers are basically all over the place, especially these days with the economy being as shitty as it is and everything. And so, you know, I find that you're, oddly enough, you're most likely to find, uh, first off, let me just preface all of this by saying, I'm fucking suspicious of panhandlers just from the outset, period. Well, there's actually a chapter in this book about fake panhandling deformities. And I was going to see if I could find a way to circle it back to that. But, you know, the, um, 
you know, the thing is, I'm just kind of suspicious of most panhandlers just from the beginning. But what a lot of newspaper companies and a lot of like apartment uh, type uh, uh, advertising companies and all these other things have decided to do is maybe they're as skeptical about all of this as I am, but basically give people a job, you know, basically saying, well, you're standing outside already anyway. So why don't you sell our newspapers or why don't you hold up our signs or, 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 or whatever, you know, and that's, you know, I can kind of see the wisdom behind that, that, you know, hey, if you're going to be outside, advertise, you know? Yeah, but what does it do for your brand if well, you're the, the place that, ad, that that has your sign on all the the panhandlers, you know? Well, I, yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I've wondered about that, but, you know, whatever. The, the thing that kind of caught my eye, though, was I remember seeing – there was this guy who was he, he was a panhandler and he and his sign said that he was a uh, an Iraq war vet and they're all war vets I find but anyway so um, I'm not trying to accuse them of stolen valor or anything I'm just saying that a lot of them at least claim to be mm-hmm. war vets so read into that whatever whatever you want but he had um, basically there was a leg that was missing and you know, he would basically stand there, hold up a sign, say, you know, words to the effect of every little bit helps and all of this stuff for a long time. And then the day came when I drove by that same intersection. And instead of, I mean, he still had a a bucket and everything out there, but instead of holding up a sign, he was actually holding up newspapers and he was selling newspapers and that was his job, Mm -hmm. you know? And it just kind of made me think that you know, there are so many comp- uh, companies out there that will pay you literally to stand on the side of the road that you don't actually have to panhandle. It kind of makes you wonder what exactly makes people panhandle now. I'll know? tell you exactly. I was just having a conversation with one of my co He was a coworker. He quit and he came back to work the rib fest with me. He has a cousin who is a drug addict, heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, he's just like, he's going to get arrested for, he's going to get ticketed for panhandling any day. He hasn't got caught yet. And he, you know, he stands on the throughway exit and we have people like, I think our city panhandlers aren't bad in our city. As far as like walking down the street, our, our city has some program now where certain one of them's certain, you, you know, you probably have to be going through a rehab pro- program or some sort of counseling but they they are authorized to sit at, at expressway exits and have a sign that says, you know, that all their signs say three or four, you know, variations of the same thing. So they probably can only say those things and they're dressed. You know, somebody got them some clothes from the, the VOA or from the, you know, from Goodwill. So they're, they have clean clothes on, maybe mismatched, but they're clean. And they, they sit there. But there's other people who just do it anyway. And his cousin was making $200 a day yeah. in that's cash. It. And that's... That's the reason, right? There. That's $6,000 a month. <laughs> Tax-free, by the way. Tax-free. And, and, and he had a homeless, you know, anything can help sign. And he's definitely not homeless. <laughs> he has a job, actually. At the, that he works at too but the, when he doesn't work at his job he makes $200 at, and uh, you know he'd probably be doing very well for himself if he wasn't a heroin addict Well, and, and see that's the thing I mean you know it. I, what I find is that there's a tremendous spirit of charity in America and that these people are just fucking abusing it and well, it's, it's to the point that you know people are actually I would imagine they're not helping people who are in genuine need now 
because of so, the fact that there are so many people abusing the fucking system. It, it, it all depends on what you want to define. It, you know, it all comes down to how you define. I mean, when it, it, my experience on the, the, <laughs> the poorer end of the, the scale of like in, 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 in the street people I know and stuff is you end up you end up in that lifestyle and it's like any other human you bond with all the people there you're bonding with them against everybody else so if you're extracting money if you're sitting around drink you know extracting money from people so you can drink all day which is what a lot of what a lot of people do face it you know i mean that i see when i worked downtown they were drinking you know they were alcoholics so they had to drink all day or else they'd start shaking or whatever and they had a not a horrible life i mean it, I, you get used to whatever life you're living and they would be sleeping in a shelter and then getting money to drink all day and sort of hanging around with each other and uh you know they were having good days where they were having fun and bad days where they were getting rousted by the police or it was rainy or shitty out or whatever um but you know on the bottom line not you know if it if everybody given the opportunity to drink themselves onto the street, if everybody has that opportunity and only the certain percentage of the people do it and, you know, it has to have, it's, it's a percentage of something. It's something that, that whether it's the disease of alcoholism and those particular persons combined, you know, there could be something wrong with them that, that that makes them not be able to go all right if i stop drinking <laughs> and i save the money that i spent on drinking you know it's whatever's driving them to drink and there's people who like eh, it's a vice or whatever and they're having too much fun but the, there's also people there's some compulsion that's driving them to it so like i you know, it's it's we're we're in that point. No matter how bad people say the economy w is, that like a lot of the people on the street, unless you're like in some place like say Portland, where all of a, or like San Francisco, where all of a sudden, you know, the housing market goes to where all of a sudden your apartment is has gone up ten times and you can't afford an apartment where you live and you're on the street. For the most part, the people that are on the street now are the people that have something going on with them you know they're alcoholics or drug addicts they they can't control their compulsions so you're seeing that percentage of the population that's just going to end up like that because they can't control and everybody has a little bit of it i mean you and i are smokers so luckily we've also picked well you know whether you pick it or not the way we manage it it hasn't <laughs> become the you know we aren't so obsessed with smoking that it's you know become the sole priority in our life whereas some people you pour a drink in their mouth and the, and it's just like ding <laughs> i found my thing that's going to that that i'm going to destroy myself with and that's you like know, it's kind of a funny percentage of humans are like that you know but it's kind of funny that you mentioned that though because it reminds me of a story <clears throat> And I tend to believe it, actually. But it reminds me of the story. This is like 20 years ago or something like that. And this was before smoking had been completely basically outlawed like it is now. Mm -hmm. 
And there was this news story that uh, that came along. And keep in mind, we're talking about like Johnny Depp back when he was still pretty young. Like this is like circa 1993, 94, around there. Yeah, 21 Jump Street era. Yeah, and not very long thereafter. And this was like a, apparently a real thing where he was – I found it kind of telling that the news headlines all all kind of framed it and phrased it in this way, but he was basically obsessed with smoking. He was not addicted. You never saw that word. He was obsessed with smoking, mm-hmm. which is, I, I thought, interesting spin. But like the minute that happened, it kind of, you know, what's the first thing you think of the minute you hear a headline like this? Well, when was the last time I saw Johnny Depp? And I don't mean like in a movie. When was the last time you saw him on TV doing this, doing that, doing the other, right? And every single interview I could remember seeing with the guy, he always had a cigarette. Every fucking one of them, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know if this is still like a problem for the guy, but, you know, I look at the way that he looks these days, you know, just like the craggly looking face, like the brow and yeah, like certain parts. Someone of- whose lightness one cigarette off the last cigarette. Yeah. And David Bowie was a, was like that, too. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I heard. And I mean, he was and I don't know if I don't know if Johnny Depp still has this problem, but he looks like a guy that, you know, he must have chain smoked for at least a couple of have, years. Have there. you ever tried chain smoking? Have you ever been somewhere where you like had a couple got a couple beers in you and then just started like we're like, I like, you know, it, it just like smoking a lot It like. If I if I like in a situation where, you know, I'm smoking a lot after about five or six cigarettes in a row, I start feeling really bad, (laughs) really horrible. You know, I have to space them out. But there's people who will just like they're almost finishing off their cigarettes so they can get to the fresh one. (laughs) Yeah. Next. And I have chained, but I've I haven't. And I mean, there are instances, you know, several instances, in fact, when I would chain one to another yeah, for like, like one, like two in a row or three yeah, in a row like at the most. You just crashed your car, you just got in an argument with somebody. It's just like, rah, yeah. it gives you something to do. But I've never chained an entire or even half right. of, or any or actually any more than three. Three is my right. Right. Because right. it's it's eh, I mean, face it, it's an addiction, but it's not a compulsion. You know, yeah. and it's and and with people who become like severely addicted to something, they mostly have some sort of compulsive personality. That's like once you get a hold of that thing and it could be turning your doorknob or whatever, but it could be administering alcohol to your nervous system that it, it just becomes their their body and their mind are going to focus on it to the exclusion of everything else and you know sometimes it works out okay for people where you'll have the housewife who's you know you see her garden and it's just like this you know perfection and and so she's wrangled her compulsion into like i'm good or some people do art that way you know they have a compulsion so they just pump out 500 paintings every year or whatever but and and with those people it's lucky that they didn't find heroin but sometimes they do (laughs) sometimes you have people who do have healthy compulsions and that's why i think you have a lot of hollywood people and 
entertainers and artists who end up becoming alcoholics and and stuff like that it's not the stress it's the compulsive nature of their their mind and uh yeah you're just always you're always going to end up with that percentage of people who they they can't they can't get their ass off a chair and go to work you know Mm. and every every family's got one you know the guy he's he's gonna work harder to not work (laughs) than to actually and it's something going on and it's like i always think that's the measure of our society is how we deal with that you know you're gonna have them how do you deal with that you can you can deal with your society too much to where you might be creating more of it or or like enabling people but i've never been of the 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 opinion that if like you gave everybody the option to not do it like all your needs were taken care of you'd still you'd get a greater percentage of people who'd be like all right i'm willing to just sit here and just like eat free food and watch tv and stuff but i think like 90 percent of the population would start going crazy after six months and be like i gotta get a job on the side just so i don't fucking start going crazy trying to build a perpetual motion machine in my garage or something you know (laughs) i think i think i think humans are driven towards building society and and getting like if if like like if there's some countries that are like the government's providing people like a basic income everybody in the country gets this basic income that's gonna allow them to like get some form of housing and eating but you know i i think even if you did that where everybody it's like here's your house you have a house uh, a, a very modest to like even below modest house and the bare amount of food to survive most people are going to be like i want a nicer house <laughs> i want better food and a car and this so they're going to get a job to to be able to augment themselves to you know wherever i i think it's just human nature you got most people that are normally driven you got the small percentage that are super driven that become your you know that make your microsofts and googles and stuff like in ford cars and stuff like that and then you have the ones on the opposite extreme who are like the good for nothing bums yeah, I guess it, it stands. It stands to reason that there would have to be a theoretically equal number of slackers as compared to like high achievers. I mean, if you yeah. if you figure that the that the middle ground is a little bit squishy and broad, yeah. the extremes would have to be just about equal in number. It at least that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, if you figure that if there's one homeless man for every millionaire in this country, well, there you go. You know. Yeah. 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 And I think it just becomes more pronounced in our day and age because we have a larger population. So it's like and it's easier. It's easier to it's also easier to withdraw from that, but it's also easier to see it. So, you know, you're more aware of 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 stuff because it's just there's just more of us crowded around. Mm. But that's about all I got on the lobster boy. (laughs) Man, we really went to Kansas and back with that one. Well, full, di- full disclosure, I'm drinking Kickstart Energy Drink, and I'm about 80% through it. So, Oh, I finished off a liter bottle of uh, Dr. Pepper. So. Ooh. Yeah. 
Well, the big book report, we fucking did it. It took yeah. like um, almost three years to the day, give or take, but we fucking, we did it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, how many books did we do? 10, 10 of 12 or something? Uh, yeah, let's have a look. There are there were seventeen of them. Oh, geez. Yeah, and of the and there are only two that we're leaving out. So we did fifteen. Yeah, we did fifteen. Yeah. So that's what like three thousand pages. <laughs> Each one of these is around two uh, three hundred three thousand and change. And I guess as far as you know, that you know this number I'm about to give it doesn't it obviously doesn't reflect you know this particular episode that we're recording like right now obviously but i guess as far as like the total you know the total amount of time that we've spent you know like just working through all of this stuff and talking about it and everything i mean we've if the goddamn itunes would come up i could actually give you the exact number but of course it's taking forever so um well we're talking about 30 35 hours of talking yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's pretty easy to believe. And, you know, it's just, it's strange to think that, you know, this all really started from the realization I had that, you know, I'm going to need help to talk about this stuff just because of the fact that, you know, you could probably do a solo show on, on any one of these and you'd probably even, you know, do okay with it, you know, but the reality is, you know, this entire series really just lends itself to, you know, dialogue and the exchange of ideas. And it's yeah. not like a Superman comic where, you know, you can just kind of do a solo show on one of those. And, you know, it's going it, to, it's not going to be radically better, you know, to do it solo versus, you know, have somebody along for the ride. Well, it's an anthology comic too. So it's a comic made by, I mean, every comic's a, is a collaboration between like writer and artist and all this, but this is like all over the place, you know, actually usually it has the same art or writer, but yeah. So it, so it, I think it benefits from being a collaborative podcast too. Plus it's like, you're not going to get two people that are going to have the same point of view on any of this stuff. Cause the stuff is weird enough as yeah. it starts with. And then you start, then you start, putting it through the lens of individual people and each person is gonna and i i mean the the part of this that i find most fascinating about these shows is which one are, you know which ones are you gonna pick you know i'm like i'm like wondering oh are we gonna and sometimes i think like i shouldn't pick this one because this one's so obvious that he's probably picked it too and I'm almost a hundred percent never right <laughs> with that. <laughs> so, which makes it fun, you know, because you just can't predict what stories are, you know. And and I think I've done the same thing to you, where we've just like baffled each other with why, you know. It's like, oh, okay, you're doing that story, okay. And then it's, then it's like I'm dying to hear why that particular story resonated above the other ones, especially sometimes since it was one that I would just read and like fly by and be like, okay, you know. Well, the, like, the total runtime on all of this, believe it or not, you know, like uh, in terms of the amount of time that we've spent, you know, recording, and this is, it, it can only really be an estimate because even though iTunes is going to give me, you know, like the full number, one of these episodes 
you know, I did, you know, feedback. And then uh, right. only once. I only made that mistake once. And then in another of these episodes, you know, there was, you know, something else. But, you know, according to iTunes, we've spent, not counting this episode, we've spent one day, 12 hours, three minutes, and 14 seconds uh, hashing through, you know, uh, these these big books. And, and, that's, and that's with stuff cut out. <laughs> yeah. That's with the tag. That's with before and after. And probably I imagine you do a little trimming in the in the middle, too. So, yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, there's. Anyway, where I'm going with all of this is really just to thank you for all of the time that you've spent, you know, going through all of this and, you know, agreeing to be, you know, sort of like a regular fixture here. It's oh, it's it, I I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I don't want it to stop. So I and I, uh, you know, I I'm pretty sure that I'm actually now that we're I, I love doing the big books. But now when we start coming up with topics in this realm all by ourselves, mm-hmm. oh, boy, I'm really looking forward to that because we can I mean. I, you know, there's. I, I'm sure there's some people who listen to this podcast. Actually, I think the majority of people who listen to the listen to the Two True Freaks podcast. There's only a percentage of them who say on Facebook. You know, mm. who follow our adventures on Facebook. But if you follow the adventures of people from Two True Freaks on Facebook, and you're on not as much on the Two True Freaks page, but if you've become a friend of the Two True Freaks page and been like, oh, I'm going to friend Magnus or I'm going to friend me who under my fake name on Facebook, you'll notice that we're sort of the ones that are on the on the more trolly end of, you know, we're, we're more on the stories of people pulling their pranks and hoaxes and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to get to some of the stuff that's happening like nowadays and happening as an effect of like the technology, the way it is now, as opposed to when the big books, some, some parts, some aspects of the hoaxing and trickery and, and fiddle fuckery and shenanigans and the big book almost seem quaint yeah. <laughs> to the level we've gotten today. And I just thought of it the other day, but you and I have got to make the most epic Andy Kaufman podcast ever someday. One of our shows has got to be Andy Kaufman. I would love to, to to do something like that. And that's even reaching back into the past. But uh, I know you're a big fan also. Yes, I am. But, you know, like as far as the future is concerned, this is the plan. I can't promise that things are actually going to shake out this way. But going forward, obviously, the big book report is going to have to go away just because there are no more. There are no more volumes that we want to talk about. Put it right. That way. All we really got left is the big book report report. Yeah. And sorta. so, yeah, we're going to do a kind of a big book sort of leftovers episode. And I'm going to leave the details of that out for right now. But that's going to be the next one that we talk about and then going forward starting in november the plan is that honeywell and i are going to talk about the sovereign citizen movement and the god that's going to be a riot yeah i'm going to have a lot to say about the about the sovereign citizens i don't want to give anything away here but i'm going to have well i'm going to have a lot to say and we're basically going to mix this up in future shows where it's going to be we're going to 
we're going to start off with like a base topic. And then after that, it goes wherever it goes. We're not necessarily yeah. confined to that one thing. And I, my, my sense of it is, is going to be that, you know, it's going to be a diverse range of materials and topics and not all of which are going to be thought of by me because obviously, you know, this is Chris's show too. So, you know, he's going to bring, you know, his ideas and topics and whatnot to the table. And the idea is, we're going to talk about things that maybe could have been in a big book, but never really were for whatever reason, or maybe updates on big books, you know, like what might some modern day urban legends be or conspiracies or hoaxes or losers or whatever. Well, here, here's, here's, I don't know if we would necessarily want to do a show on this topic, but like, um, a good, um, example would be Banksy, the guy who does the, graffiti art that nobody's known who he is and he he'll, he'll sneak into he'll sneak into Disneyland and install stuff and sneak out you know and put stuff up in the middle of the night and is world famous or um I'm trying to think of um the guy he used to he always used to quote um 2001 and he made panels out of fl- blacktop mm-hmm. with with words in them, and he would leave them in the streets, and cars would run over them and run them into the streets, and you know he uh, nobody knew who he was or how he did it, and they would show up all over the world and s- stuff like that. That's the stuff that that and when we get into the hoaxy era there, and internet pranks and hoaxes, I mean, there's just such a wide world of it that I'm always looking at stuff that I just would love to discuss and have not had a forum for it. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I'm looking forward to the discussing a lot of the ideas behind them. That's where our tangents are probably <laughs> going to come in because I mean, that's the part of the show that's probably going to remain exactly the same <laughs> as these big book reports is oh they got a topic and then you then it's just like oh we're talking about vaping now. <laughs> well yeah and and see that's the thing. I mean I I could be wrong but as far as like you know popular acclaim is concerned I'm pretty sure that the big book report is probably the most popular thing that I do. But I mean you've probably noticed this that you know you've got a, a probably a few listeners who listen to just you read out of a phone book but that, more likely happened. more likely what you've got are you have Star Trek fans who listen to your Star Trek shows, but they could give a damn about comics. Or you've got uh, comics fans who maybe are more interested in the Comics Monthly Monday thing than they are, say, Star Wars. Right. You know, and they don't necessarily go from all of your shows. They don't necessarily follow everything. They only follow you on certain things. Yeah. Because I, I mean, know I've Star got. Star Wars is a good example of like you have Star Wars fans who've never read a comic book in their life, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you want to talk about like, fertile podcasting territory. I mean, I don't know that there's an upper limit on how far you can go talking about Star Wars. People are fucking in love with Star mm-hmm. Wars. So, you know, I I haven't really done a whole lot of Star Wars stuff, but the but the shows that I've done about Star Wars, they tend to and they tend to be very kind of flash in the pan. When you put them up, they'll that'll be the one of the biggest things on the network for a good like 2 months or something like that. Then it tapers off. Like then the people, the people who, yeah, because it, it's a different, 
the people the people who are just like superficially interested get in there right at the beginning. Yeah, the and, uh, when we did the, the the team negative one episode, oh my god, that thing. It was like consistently in the top 10 most downloaded shows on the network. Mm -hmm. And then it's like overnight it died. Yeah, it was that was also but there was also like that was also a news story, too, at that time, too. So that that helped with the interest in it. There were people Googling Team Negative one more. And but I was Scott Gardner and I noticed that, um, you know, we, we, we had an audience for our our Star Trek and our Star Star Wars podcasts, you know, the monthly Mondays. But then when we did those Freak Files podcasts, oh, yeah. which we great. did as a whim, you know, it was just something we were talking about. Wouldn't it be fun to do an Art Bell style stuff? And and both of us are intensely interested in that stuff. So we wanted to talk about it. And we had stuff that like we're not hearing on Art Bell and just that we wanted to talk about. So we're like, oh, let's let's do it. And, you know, and we figured it would be one of those podcasts. You pop it up and then everybody forgets about it. But we just wanted to do it. And oh, my God, you know, the response to that was, you know, and, and it was covering, you know, we had the people who listen to our Star Trek and our Star Wars. They all were just like, we want more of this, more of this. Which, of course, took a little more preparation than so we have not done as many freak file stuff. But that's what this this is fertile. This show is going to be fertile ground for those kind of topics. And we had we had Gardner on a big book, didn't we? Yeah, the big book of the unexplained. And that was a lot of fun, you know? Yeah, so I, I, I could see like talking him into. Well, I don't think we'd even have to talk him into it. We just have to work it into his schedule. But I could see him turning up on some of the some future topics, especially if we start getting into UFO topics. And there's there's all sorts of weird UFO stuff going on now out of nowhere. UFO talk. You know, I don't I don't want to sign my name to this necessarily. But one of the things that I've kind of observed is that there's something about the summer that just tickles people's UFO imaginations. And the only thing I... outside more. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and I've often kind of wondered, you know, let's face it. I mean, you know, Roswell happened, you know, during the summer. And the... um, Now I'm forgetting the official name, but the lights over Arizona, that was in... That happened, like, in the late spring or, or, or summer, you know. On and on and on down the line. It seems like major UFO phenomena tend to be most noticeable in the late spring or more likely just during the armpit of summer. I've never thought of that, but now that I'm thinking about it, have you ever seen uh, like somebody's camera video of UFO over a snowy field? I don't think I ever have. The very closest I've seen to that is there was a... Um, I want to, it may have actually been in Moscow. It was somewhere in Russia for sure. Somebody uh, shot a, a a UFO video. Now the veracity of this I cannot speak to. I have no idea right, if this, right. you know, especially nowadays. Yeah, but there was um, a UFO video taken in Russia, and in the background, what you saw was um, there was a this sort of range of mountains that it looked like they had like thick, noticeable amounts of snow on them, but the ground in the video, like in the foreground, uh, the ground, it was 
there was no snow to be seen. It was all in the background. That's the closest I've ever seen yeah. to a snowy UFO. I've never video. thought of that, but now that I think about it, I never hear. Never, or, I'm gonna have to do a little research and see if the Eskimos have UFO lore. My, but like the buzz I've noticed lately has been coming from the political world. Have you? Have you? There. The, for the first story was someone on Clinton's team, basically, was strongly hinting that if she became president, she was going to do do some UFO disclosure. That there was a lot of stuff that she was going to release. And uh, yeah, I'll believe that, that just, when uh, I see it. Uh, right. That just I that just sort of popped out. And then just two days ago, there was. Um, Somebody in the Obama administration was basically saying that on his way out that he was planning on doing a similar sort of like release of of um, of a whole lot of more documents that would go into the Freedom of Information Act or something, which. It's just weird, (laughs) you know, it was one of those things where it's like. Why? What? 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 What is motivating politicians doing? And it was almost like they were putting out a little test balloon to see how people reacted. And for the most part, I don't think people really did react to it at all. I just sort of noted it and was like, "Ah, it's it's just a it's a weird thing. Is is it supposed to make a reaction, or is that actually going to happen?" And you know, then I'm trying to figure out: are like, are they going to tell us, you know, well, yeah, the aliens have been genetically experimenting on us for 60 years, or is it going to be more like, ah, here's the paperwork; it's all government test <laughs> stuff, you know, or is it just going to be just a, a bunch of bullshit that doesn't say anything either way? But it's weird. There's just been a lot of talk about it lately. Hmm. Well, in the yeah, 90s, we may want to actually do a show about that then, because, dude, you talk yeah, about yeah. a fertile fucking topic right there. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you would have talked about someone in the government doing UFO disclosure and say 1996, it would have been people would have gone crazy. That's when everybody had alien T-shirts with aliens on it, you know, and X-Files read, was a thing. Yeah. X-Files was a thing. Everybody was reading Whitley Strieber books and listening to Art Bell and uh and now it just sort of like it does seem a bit passe i'll agree yeah well either way though dude you know uh all this time all of these shows you know the big book report dude we fucking did it so thank you very much for for joining in with me i really appreciate you taking this thing to to so many more levels than i ever thought would be possible it was a pleasure and it is always satisfying when you wrap something up (laughs) it's bittersweet it is, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm, I know that we're going to be talking about, you know, similar subjects, you know, going forward. But, you know, like I was saying earlier, this is, this is something I'm going to miss, you know, like the comic book aspect yeah. of this is yeah. because, you know, I really, I can say hand on heart, you know, whether these, you know, all of these volumes are the greatest thing you've ever read, or maybe some could have been better than they were. These are still amazingly good comics. And I hope that we've inspired at least a few people you know, to go out there and, you know, uh, pick up these books and, you know, rediscover what I think are some of the best comics of the 90s, as far as I'm concerned. And there was a good amount of them sold. So they, they turn up and use books. I see them in used bookstores quite a bit. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that's basically it for me this week. Now, 
I guess moving forward, going into next week, I'm going to be continuing my my retrospective of the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. This is the the third part of my dreaded fourth season retrospective. And this is when we start getting into the real armpit of how much the dreaded fourth season of Smallville just fucking sucks. So that's when, you know, the fur really starts to fly on that. So if that sounds like your idea of fun, well, <laughs> come back for that. But, I've never seen a single episode of Smallville. <laughs> well, you know, I got to tell you, if if you ever get the urge Avoid the fourth season until there's just no no choice anymore. Because if I make it, I was gonna say if I make it to the fourth, if I start watching it and I make it to the fourth season, I'm by that point I'm going to be determined to plow through any kind of like, you know, horrifying arti- artistic misstep just to see where it all goes. Every it seems like almost every continuous thing has a dreaded season. You know, Walking Dead it's the second season. Star Trek The Next Generation, it's the first three seasons, <laughs> two, at least two. Well, as far as I know, this is the worst fourth season of any show ever. I mean, people can talk whatever shit they want about the fourth season of Buffy. Fourth season's a bad season to go bad because you're trying to get through the fifth so you can get syndicated, you know? That's yeah. what everybody's sort of aiming for, especially at that point. Yeah, and, you know, there – now – a lot of this stuff isn't really anybody's fault. You know, I mean, it's just fate just kind of conspired against, um, you know, the showrunners and everything. And that's just what happened. But this, you know, there are so many things that were within their control and just fucking sucked anyway. And so, like I say, it's, it's one of those things where if you can just get through the fourth season, what comes before it is great. What comes after it is great. The fourth season this is going to be what tests your metal. So if <laughs> if that sounds like fun to anybody, go ahead and tune in for it, that. It probably the, does, though. It probably does. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this is when I really start getting explosive. If I, familiar, and, if I was actually familiar with the material and watched all of Smallville, I would probably be looking forward most to what you had to say about the fourth season. Well, if you want a preview of it, I went on this almighty rant. And this episode is actually out right now. This almighty rant for the first part of my Smallville dreaded fourth season retrospective. This was episode number, what the fuck, uh, 142. And I just went on this huge fucking rant about about different things and stuff. So if you want to hear me rant and rave like a lunatic, well, there's number one, that's a good preview. Number two, there's going to be a lot more of that next week. <laughs> there's so. going to be ample opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me 
and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. It up. You fucked yeah, it I up. I, I, I hit. <laughs> That's okay. I still have the. Uh... Oh, maybe I did screw up the file. Oh no, it's just burning it off. Yeah, mine's. Uh... Oh look, there it goes. It just now finished up uh, crunching it down right now. So. Yeah, mine's still crunching. Uh, yeah, I hit, I hit hang up instead of stop on my record. Yeah, I've, if I had a nickel for every time I've done that. So, yeah. No, it happens. You know. I did that in the Maui's podcasting with Hope a couple weeks ago and did that instead of hitting mute. <laughs> it's bloop. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> it makes you feel, I don't know, I always feel like an idiot whenever I do that. So, you know, can't even work a, the freaking buttons. You know, so. Well... It's been a few years since I've done a whole show without hitting 
record. So that's that's a big step for me. <laughs> Scott and I did a whole show with a guest. Oh shit. Yeah. No. Yeah, and not just like one of our buddies' guests, like a comic writer guest. Fuck. And and none of it got recorded. Fuck. Yeah, and he, he was so we were so lucky he was so accommodating and it was i think in the early enough days of podcasting where uh, he where these guys weren't like ah oh, goddamn podcasters <laughs> he was just like hey somebody's interested in what i have to say <laughs> yeah but talk about that feel sinking feeling of dread and embarrassment when at the end of this excellent interview i'm sitting there you know, it's Scott Gardner in Orlando and this guy and wherever he was and and I'm sitting there all alone realizing, oh shit. <laughs> I have to tell both these people. <laughs> we were all talking about how great the interview went. <laughs> oh jeez. Well guys, I got some bad news. <laughs> yeah, uh, guys <laughs> and Scott Scott learned to uh dread <laughs> me going, uh guys. <laughs> After that he would always go, What, what? <laughs> I can imagine. Poor guy. <sighs> well, he'll live. I don't know about you. <laughs> I have got to get some tacos in me, so I'm gonna go ahead and, and uh, get going here. But uh, thanks again, man. This was a lot of fun. No sweat. All right, you have a good rest of the day. All right. All right. See you later. Take care.